days ago. What were you up, What were you doing up till four o'clock if you made the last edit two days ago? Reading about color perception. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. It's all. It's almost work. Happens in V4, right? No one knows where it happens or how it happens. <laughs> you know, I just read. Uh, I mean, I know that was your like crusade against uh, one of the people in in the old grad school who you know used to be like V4 does color. Um, but I just saw the same exact thing repre- uh, reprinted in uh, a book by what's his name um, Ramachandran. Oh well, the Phantoms and the Brain guy. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I mean the the first V four papers were like it must be the color area, and no one's bothered to follow up on that. Or it's funny now though because there are a bunch of papers arguing that it does color among other things. Well, I mean it certainly has color selectivity, right, or sensitivity, but. It doesn't exclusively do that because all cells are not color sensitive, right? Uh, yeah, or they're sort of widely color sensitive. Right. I mean, that's like... Wait, let's talk about this after we actually start the podcast. <laughs> okay, well, I mean... No, we could, no thunder stealing. We could say that we are actually... I don't no, know. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we have some sort of introduction? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we could always cut the, you know, cut and move this around. Um I was just going to say, I mean, let, let's talk about this while we're talking about it, because I'm. it's weird to me, though, that they, just because they found color-sensitive cells in V4, like, they're obviously color-sensitive cells in, say, V1, but you wouldn't say that that's the color area. You, you just say that's, you know, that's part of the visual pathway, and color is part of vision. Oh, the, there, there is a logic to that, though. Um, what, what's the logic? So V4 has, like, uh, perceptual colors, right? So uh, in the retina, you have your, your rods... And cones. Oh, I see. So it responds not so much to wavelength, but to what you would classify. Yeah. So you you get away from the like double opponent, you know, red, blue, red, green, whatever. Okay. Uh, red, green, blue, yellow, and you get you know like orange. Yeah. Maybe if you believe this paper from like 1978. Um. No, I, w- I would believe that. But so I guess we could interject for the podcast listeners that when we say V4, we're talking about a visual area in the brain. Uh, with V1 being the first visual area in, well, in the well, cortex part of the brain. Um, with the first meaning, like, the signal goes from your retina to your thalamus and then to your cortex for most of its processing. Um, we think, mostly. Well, yeah. Um, Somehow we haven't figured out what that back, you know, third of the brain does. Uh, I mean, Probably not important. It does, like, vision visiony things. Yeah, you would think. There's this weird result where you can get categorization faster than you can get uh, IT activation. So, so what do you mean? Like you, well, tell me more. Okay. So you, you, it's very easy for you and monkeys and even, yeah, you are monkeys to, uh, to take stimuli <laughs> and to categorize them into, into categories, right? So you can tell right. something's a face or not, or a, do- or a dog or not, or a, a fruit or not, or a fruit dog or something. So, uh, so people normally think that this large sort of temporal lobe area, the infratemporal cortex, is basically responsible for this. So if you, you poke it with electrodes, uh, you find that there are cells which are selective for, uh, say, faces. And there's tons of MRI stuff where there's, there's like a face-selective patch. There's a scene-selective patch. Right, right. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yes, I'm well familiar with the uh, face-selective patches and so forth, yeah. Well, it's true, but other people might not know quite as much about it. Sorry, I guess I should. Yes, I should realize. Like, I I went through the same grad school you did. I know all this stuff. <laughs> Why are you telling me these things? Uh, have to remember on a podcast. On a podcast. So uh, yeah, so there's all this sort of uh, physiological evidence that 
infratemporal cortex is involved in categorization. Well, so can I ask you, like temporally speaking, in, in monkeys, when does that happen? Because in the human, like you get the N170 for faces, for example, um, basically suggests that the face response is happening about 170 milliseconds after presentation. Yes. So, so this is why this is awesome. So, uh, so they designed this sort of clever paradigm where you can get extremely fast and extremely tight reaction time distributions. Okay. So do you know about express saccades? Uh, not so much, no. Okay. So the idea is that uh, when you're going to make a saccade, yeah. you have sort of two, two opposing forces in uh, whatever the saccade generating circuitry is. So one wants you to keep your eyes stable and one wants you to move your eyes. Right. So normally if you, if you have someone uh, holding their eyes steady on a dot, like fixating a dot, and then they make a saccade, yeah. uh, you've got to sort of fight the, the stay steady circuitry uh, to make the saccade. So you have sort of a longer reaction time. And in the 80s, people discovered that if you do this really simple manipulation where you take away the dot that you're currently fixating on, uh, just before you put up the sort of saccade target, right. you get saccades like way, way faster. So like 80 to 100 milliseconds instead of 200-ish milliseconds. So that basically automatically disengages you from like your keep your eyes fixated uh, kind of mindset and, and basically sets you up to then make a saccade to somewhere, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you, it's imagine if you're driving, like normally, you know, you take off the parking brake and then later you hit the gas. This yeah. is sort of like uh, you do both of them like sort of in one smooth movement and peel yeah. out. Well, I mean, this is, you know, it's funny that you mentioned this because we were looking at very similar things to that in thought, right? I mean, when we do this uh, refresh thing, one thing we're currently dealing with is like we have these cues that say like hold these two items in memory um, and then think of the one and then, you know, then we often have like a probe or do have them do something else. And we suspect, um, there's some really funky stuff going on with the timing of those that may be related to like exactly how long you show the arrow. Cause basically we may be cueing people to like stop thinking of the thing, you know, by taking, by taking the stim, by taking the cue off screen that tells you what you're supposed to be thinking about. Yeah, so that's that's basically exactly this. Yeah, so so I would think that the, I mean it's all attention. So I think probably a similar sort of thing is going on. That like you know we haven't we haven't tried to break it down to this level yet because you know this is already pretty fine grained for like higher level thought that we're trying to get at. But um, it does <clears> look like there are pretty subtle cues. Uh, you know, if you're doing kind of a working memory thing that tell you like when to disengage your attention from something in memory as well as you know, so so it totally fits with the idea that you the same thing would happen in visual, you know, actually moving your eyes and visual attention or, or um, whatever you would say, eye movements, yeah. Yeah, so if you combine these, you get this crazy result. Um, so they set up a task where basically you have to saccade left, uh, you have to saccade towards, say, the face, and they put up a face and uh, something else. Yeah, okay, so if they put a face versus a scene, you always go to the face. Yeah, or you're cued, right? So yeah. you know, sometimes you go to the face, sometimes you go to the scene. And anyway, if you set it up in this sort of express saccade paradigm, you get people initiating a saccade towards the towards the target in uh, for faces like 120 milliseconds, which is you know oh, okay. obviously precedes the N170 by yeah. well 50 milliseconds. And so you, you've got to figure that the categorization takes way less than 120 milliseconds because you're also planning the eye movement in that interval, right? Right. Which is kind of nuts. So I mean, do people? Where do you think that's happening? I mean, do you think that's happening in the cortex, or do you think that's going on in like the superior colliculus? 
So I guess there are three theories. Yeah. So Jim DiCarlo is pushing that it's still IT. So you can decode uh, the category from the like the very first spikes in IT. Okay, so the very first category selective spikes in IT happen earlier, I would imagine, than 170, right? Yeah, so they happen around 75 to 100 milliseconds. So if you take oh. like that sort of time interval, you can decode the category. Well, that's plenty of time to, yeah, to potentially win a race condition if, you know what I mean, if the, if the primary opposing force has been taken away. That kind of makes sense. Well, it gives you 30 or 40 milliseconds to find the eye movement, which might be feasible. Yeah. But the thing is, the way it's been shown is just a, like a classifier analysis. And if you had a really good classifier, right, you should be able to pull the category out of, you know, anywhere. Yeah, that's true. You shouldn't even need the monkey. You should be able to pull it out of the image. Well, yes, of course. Right, but I mean, if you had a, the perfect classifier, you could do it from the retina, which is like 50 milliseconds. Yeah. All right, so that, that's theory number one. And probably the most plausible... Well, I mean, right. I mean, you could do it from the retina, but you're not saying interest, anything interesting about the brain. Then you're just saying something about the pattern of, of the image. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, would personally think that is hella interesting. But well, yes, it says, tells you nothing about biology. It tells you that you have an awesome uh, image classifier. I mean, that's actually... But now that you say that, that's sort of an interesting problem, right? Because, well, I guess this is always the problem. So, you know, let's say you put your classifier in like V4, for example, right? So, or you put, you know, you record from V4 and try to classify. If V4 contains a bunch of primitive image features, which is, I mean, loosely speaking, I guess you would agree that that's what people think V4 does, right? Is some sort of like pro, like some of the shapes and uh, pieces of what make up complex visual figures, right? Yeah, you could intermediate, intermediate level features or something. Yeah, some sort of, so not like objects, which is what inferior temporal cortex is thought to do. Like, is thought to do is recognize objects and faces and scenes and things, and not something as low level as bars and blobs of color, uh, or or light and dark or whatever, but something in between, right? Like curves or ed, you know certain patterns of edge configurations or whatever, right? Yeah, I'd say that that's pretty accepted. Right. So. From that, I mean, just like you could from a raw computer image or a retinal image, you could presumably decode that some, something is a face versus a scene or something like that, right? Well, you have conveniently uh, segued into hypothesis number two, which is that certain categories can be distinguished based on low-level features, which are accessible to something like, uh, they actually say even V1 or, yeah, right. So, so depending on the specific categories, you might be able to pull this out quickly. And then you would use IT or the sort of downstream areas from there to actually do a sort of more to, – to distinguish other categories. Yeah. And there's a, t- there's a tiny bit of evidence for this in that you're fastest for faces and then you're sort of next fastest for animals. And then you're uh, sort of slower for things like vehicles, which don't aren't like ethologically relevant. Right. But I guess – so what my question was um, how do you then know – like if you want to say that something – I mean, and this gets into sort of some of my fundamental philosophical issues with everything we do in neuroscience. Say you come upon an area or a cell or whatever. Well, let's not say a cell because a cell uh, makes more sense. But say an area that you think codes for faces um, and you can decode face identity from the activation in that area. How Can you really say that that's an area for processing faces? Because you can do that with a lot of visual areas that aren't particular to faces in any, I guess you would, I guess you could only say that if from the activity you could decode face identity, but not like visual scene identity or 
car identity or so forth, right? Like it was real, you would have to be uninformative for other categories. Yeah, that's the, that's the step that's always seems to be missing from people's uh, MVPA stuff, right? It's only really interesting if it doesn't work. Right. Well, if it if you get a double dissociation, right? It's got to work for something but not work for a yeah, very closely related thing. I mean, it is yeah, I, and you know, let's not say this too much because I have a paper doing MVPA. Um I mean, it's somewhat interesting in a sense, right? I mean, um as an existence proof. So, you know, we have that as yet unpublished manuscript showing that in the Perhepcampal place area, for example, um, you can decode, this is, I guess it's more interesting in this case because you can decode not only what people, which scene people are viewing, but which scene people are imagining, right? right? So that's potentially more interesting because nothing says for sure that uh, when you think of a scene that this visual area you know, has to represent which scene you're thinking of, but it turns out it seems to. Um, but it is also true that like a lot of things could lead to that that are not very interesting, such as maybe you just really like imagining a beach versus a mountain. No, not the beach. Not the beach. <laughs> yes. Actually, there was no mountain, I think. Yes, you were a subject in this study uh, twice, as I recall. <laughs> there was a house. There was a beach. There was a field. Uh, uh, is there a forest? I think, let's see, I think it was a forest, yeah. Uh, there are only field, four. Field, house, beach, must have been forest. Um, no. Shoot, that's going to no, bug me. seem right. I think they were all monosyllabic. Face, house, no, face, house, no, not face, field, house. It, was there like a desert? Yes, there was a desert. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. So it wasn't monosyllabic. Because they were distinguished based on the water. Right. Um but anyway, so like maybe you just really liked imagining the beach versus the house, right? Um, so that would just lead to overall more activity in that area potentially for the beach than the house, which would say that that area represents identity information, like it reliably distinguishes the beach from the house, but maybe just because you like the, like the beach better than the house and overall that activates certain cells or certain voxels of the brain image more. Uh, conveniently, you have set me up for the third hypothesis okay. here, which is from your uh, your role model, Joe Ledoux. Uh, for um, no offense, if he ever listens to our podcast, which I I suspect he won't, but uh, you, you, I told you this joke already, right? <laughs> That's why I'm already laughing. <laughs> uh, there's a very famous neuroscientist named Joseph Ledoux, who he, he's really a smart guy and a good you know a good neuroscientist. Um, but he, he studies the amygdala and emotion and things like that. Um, but he gave a talk at Yale once. It was, I just think it was not his A game that he brought. I think he put it together on the train on the way to Yale. And uh, a bunch of us were afterwards kind of deconstructing it. And somebody said, well, what would you think of it? And somebody was like, oh, it's not very good. And I was like, it was basically much Ledoux about nothing. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> uh, he also did go on for a long time. I guess I should have mentioned that too. Um, but yeah, so so what about Joe Ledoux? So, so he's shown, and you know, people sort of aligned with him have shown that in rats, there's sort of this uh, special pathway for auditory stimuli that are frightening, right? So it goes sort of straight through the amygdala, bypasses cortex. They call yeah. it sort of the low road as opposed to the cortical high road. I mean, they've already, hadn't they already shown that for uh, visual stimuli? No. So I found this I found this amazingly snarky review that was like. Uh, what is the evidence for subcortical processing of visual stimuli? Yeah. And it's, it's basically just like, there is none. <laughs> and it was somewhere published somewhere not like terribly fantastic, 
But it's a good point that unlike the auditory system, like there's not like a bundle of nerves where you're like, aha, yeah. I see where this is coming from and I see where it's going. Okay. It's just not going through cortex. Well, I guess I was just thinking, I mean, I know behaviorally there are studies and I, I'm going to speak very loosely because I can't remember any of the specifics, but I know that there are studies showing that for certain types of emotional stimuli and certain paradigms, you can respond like freakishly fast and, you know, way better than you can for any sort of normal class of stimuli and way faster. But I guess that still is not necessarily implying that it goes through a different pathway necessarily. Yeah. Well, I, I have to actually read more on this because, you know, one review in like frontiers of snarky reviews yeah. is not uh, the gold standard here. <laughs> can we can we found the journal Frontiers in Snarky Neuroscience? Because, uh, well, I, I think this is basically the audio uh, book of that journal. <laughs> Yeah, I think we've already done it. Just type all this out. Yeah, uh, that sounds like work. Um, <laughs> Which I've just weirdly spent like 20 minutes talking about. Well, yeah. So wait, hypothesis three is what? Is that there's some special subcortical route. So it's not even being read out through uh, v, V1 or V4, that there's a whole special pathway, which would explain why the sort of, you know, relevant things like faces and things that are going to eat you get processed so quickly. Right. But uh, yeah. So anyway... All right, let's do some introductory things. You, introduce yourself. Well, so uh, hello again, podcast listeners. Um, welcome back to the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. Uh, so I'm Matt Johnson. And I'm Matt Krause. And we're here to uh, bring you some, some wacky science discussion. Um, so what, what the thing I was going to say first is that I made a note that we didn't really do... We did do some intro stuff last time, but basically our introduction was like, well, this is probably going to suck uh, the first time, right? So, yes, and people are frighteningly listening to this, so we yeah. should make it better. So far, I, I think it's mostly all of our grandmas, right? But, uh, well, any grandmas that are still alive. Aren't you from the South? I would expect that you would not have 38 grandmas. I do not, I guess. I only have uh, every generation of my only family one. Has, has exactly, yes, two humans in it. Um, but, no... Um, Actually, I don't think any of my family has yet heard about this, but uh, mostly seemingly our friends from grad school that already know all this stuff. But Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for listening. Shout out to you guys. We are flattered and not terribly surprised you don't have anything better to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we should, in case anyone who is a stranger is listening, we should kind of um, talk about what this is a little bit, I guess, right? So, um, like, I don't even... We did say the name, I guess, in the first podcast, but we were still trying to nail down the name. Um, well, we knew what it was, but we debated calling it other things. Um, but uh, yeah, we're the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. Yeah, I mean, I like the name because I think, you know, we talked about um, what exactly we wanted to convey this as, and we didn't want it to be like, super party, you know, have a beer bong science time, right? Because um, that's, a little too unserious and might jeopardize our future job prospects. Also, we are dignified and serious academics, right. as you all know. Yeah, we, we d yes, we deserve to be treated with respect. I'm wearing a top hat and monocle along with the t-shirt <laughs> I've owned since high school. I'm wearing a top hat and monocle, but neither is on my head right now. Ah! <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, oh, good. I laughed quite heartily, and that still didn't pick no up clippings. my volume. Yeah. Um, so, so should we introduce ourselves in a less haphazard manner? Yeah, but what I was going to say is, uh, you know, so we thought that Super Science Happy Hour, A, um, happy hour meaning like 
you know, it's about an hour, presumably, if it's a podcast. Um, but also evoking like happy hour, which is, you know, like, hey, have a drink, talk about science. But also, you know, a lot of our doing this in grad school was, you know, just hanging around, having a beer or whatever with our pals. Uh, so I figured that would be a good compromise between serious discussion and uh, whimsy and fun. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty much an online version of what we used to do in grad school, which is hang around and sort of talk yeah. about science and gossip about scientists. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, and the whole super science happy hour uh, thing, as I mentioned, like, I really, I've always kind of liked that uh, sort of over-the-top, uh, like, Japanese game show style title, which, uh, like, like the... Um, oh, I love Japanese game shows. Yeah. Especially, especially all the ones that have, like, a, there's one with a chimpanzee that they teach to do things. Like, he makes noodles. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. You're like, why is this on TV? How did you get a chimp? And... <laughs> Why are you eating noodles that are made by a chimp? <laughs> I think you can, I think much like uh, schoolgirl panties, you can just buy chimps out of vending machines in Japan, I'm pretty sure, if you have enough yen. Hmm. Actually, they do have monkeys in Japan. Uh, the southern island has a hot spring that's full of crab-eating macaques. Oh, you know the crab-eating macaques are actually the kind of monkey that, uh, you've seen my uh, pictures of the, when I visited, what's it called? The um, Batu Caves is uh, kind of a, I think it's a Hindu-like, shriny type area but it's also a natural cave formation yeah and it's full of uh crab eating macaques and they just walk right up to you yeah they're they're kind of cool they have huge tails which i find slightly hilarious and sort of beards okay which is weird to say on an animal that's covered yeah. in fur well they look they look beardy they look beardy yeah they have kind of a kind of a mane sort of but yeah i know what you mean like a yeah like a mouth mane which is called the beard what kind of uh primate was that in the lion king that holds him up to the sun is that a baboon or something yeah that was probably a baboon but they also have kind of a main thing right yeah baboons have uh baboons are a little bigger yeah and they have some other stuff going on they're like super strong too yeah um okay a little a little add ish um yeah the baboon is sort of all main the crab eating macaque is only main in the face yeah and the baboon is also like a totally different family uh, okay so instead of macaques they're uh they're papio well, baboons are, they are apes, though, right? And not monkeys? Or are they monkeys? They're, they're old world monkeys. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the apes are like your, your gorilla, your thing like that. Okay, because I always thought a baboon was a small ape. An orangutan's an ape, I guess. Orangutan is an ape. We, all, we have plenty of orangutans in Malaysia also. Actually, you do? You know, it comes from, Can one be my friend? Do you know that orangutan comes from the Malay language, right? Oh, yeah. Doesn't it mean like jungle man or something? Yeah, like forest man or jungle man. Uh, orang is... is man or person and utan is i think forest or maybe jungle really yeah i have a my uh, colleague neil works with uh he does active vision with an orangutan there's an orangutan eye tracker he 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 yes he has an orangutan named tsunami that is at the zoo here and he uh he has a little orangutan it's a uh, it's just like a little headset one that uh he's trained the orangutan to wear the headset and i mean it's slow going but he's at the stage now where the orangutan does not try to eat the headset, so that's a, that's progress. And uh, yeah, she'll like walk around and look at stuff, and it's still a bit hard to calibrate it. But uh, he's he's working on doing some like active, you know, eye tracking experiments with the orangutan. Cool. I guess we should add this. Is, this is one of my like uh, grad school inspired pet peeves. I guess we should talk about the difference between the different kinds of primates. Inside the order of primates, there's yep. basically four groups plus us. So so we are humans. At least right. I am. Yes, you are. You are definitely a homo. Ooh. <laughs> Am I a sapien sapiens though? Which is, you know, uh, 
Wise, wise. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Fine. Okay. So, so other than humans, you can sort of group the primates into four groups. They're the prosimians, which are sort of the least like us. Right. Those are like your lemurs and stuff, right? Yeah. So that's your lemurs, your lorises, your tarsers. Okay. Uh, so if Amanda Casales is listening to this, these are the small, cute, monkey-like right. animals. Big-eyed and jumpy. Yeah. So tarsier is like my favorite animal ever because they look creepy. They have amazing sensory systems and they're also like pocket-sized. Unfortunately, you can't breed them in captivity because they just get sad and then die. Yeah. It seems, do all of the uh, uh, primates in this, what is this, is a genus? Uh, well, I guess this would be in a, what? King Philip cried, oh, order? This is an order, you said? So primates is the order? Oh, right. Yeah. So in this family, right. Uh, so all the primates in this family look like they're permanently surprised, or is that only tarsiers? Uh, I guess lemurs kind of look surprised. I think they do too, yeah. Yeah, lemurs look pretty surprised as well. They're, they're, they're not as awesome as tarsiers, but you can actually have lemurs in captivity. So, you know. Yeah. It's a toss-up. Um, okay, so you've got your prosimians. Okay, then you've got your, your actual monkeys. So these are right. a little bit smaller than people normally think. And they're sort of a, a family of old world monkeys, uh, which live uh, in Asia. I don't know if there are any in Africa, actually. There must be monkeys. I mean... Yeah, there are, there are some in Africa. But they would be old world and not new yeah, world those are in old Africa, world. right? Yeah. And, uh, and they're also the new world monkeys, which have come to the new world, much like Christopher Columbus. Yes. Although presumably not in a boat. I was going to say, were the new world monkeys also... You they know, were looking, looking for India. Looking for golden spices. Yeah. <laughs> so there are things like the marmoset, uh, I think the howler monkey. Okay. And there's lots of, there's actually some weird evolutionary differences. Like uh, the old world monkeys have trichromatic vision like we do. So they right. can see uh, red, blue, green. Yep. And most of the new world monkeys don't have it. Uh, so they're, sure. they're dichromats. Oh, interesting. Uh, did these diverge... Um... I mean, what's what's the evolutionary history? I assume those were those branched off from each other relatively recently. Uh, was, did they cross over? Is it thought that they crossed over? You know, Alaska like humans, or what's the deal with that? Uh, nobody really knows. Okay. So it's about forty million years ago, I think. Um, yeah. So th- I guess the two competing theories. I just looked this up. Are that they came over the land bridge, which makes a yep. lot of sense to me, or that they came over on a raft, which seems <laughs> <laughs> looking for a better world. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with Land Bridge based on the fact that I... Although I would love to see a boat powered by monkeys. Yes. Anyway, so the last the last group is the apes. So that's your right. chimps, uh, your gorillas, your orangutans, and also your bonobos that everyone seems to love recently because they're like the hippie love, peace, and understanding of monkeys. Oh, do they... Uh... Just, like, hang out with each other? I don't know what bonobos do. Are they just... Oh, they have a lot of sex, which is why they're sort of popular with people who who give TED Talks and things like that. Yeah. Bonobos look... I didn't realize bonobos looked as much like chimps as they do. Yeah, they're... they're, uh, Well, I guess they look sort of like the cross between a chimp and a gorilla, which would make sense, I suppose. I think they're the same family. Yeah, they're pan. They're the same genus as uh, Oh, as chimps? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, bonobos are interesting. They, uh... But they're not nearly as uh, mean as chimpanzees. Is what you're saying? No, yeah, they're sort of the opposite. Yeah. You know, orangutans, I guess, are very... Um, I didn't realize they were, like, so solitary. They're pretty solitary dudes. Um, so I, I think they're pretty gentle, typically. 
unless you yeah you someone know. came to yell actually uh and gave a talk about them and like two-thirds of his talk was like pictures of him being hugged by orangutans and then occasionally he talked about science have you seen i just saw on reddit fairly recently uh the orangutan that uh adopted a dog no i'm not i'm i don't normally have the gene that makes me susceptible to high levels of cuteness but uh the orangutan that adopted the dog that was was pretty cute uh I'm Googling this now. Orangutan and dog is the Google autocomplete for orangutan. Okay, that's pretty adorable. Oh, yeah, there's a Daily Mail, which is, you know, like the worst journalism ever, but probably suited to covering orangutans and dogs. Yeah. <laughs> the, the dog looks so much more skeptical than the orangutan. <laughs> the dog is like, I've made a mistake. This isn't a person. It is sort of funny. The orang- <laughs> there's video of them somewhere. Oh, yeah, I think it's on this Huffington Post link. We'll, we'll put these on the show notes later, so we don't necessarily have to do it right now. But uh, there's some good uh, video of the orangutan. Like, I guess they move via like somersaulting quite a bit. Um, yeah, they're they're super climbers too. They spend a lot of their time up in trees. Uh, orangutans, not dogs. Dogs don't climb. Yeah, they love to swing around. Um, the, the ones at the zoo here, you know, have like a basically a ropes course. As you would expect from a jungle man. I mean, well, yes, that's true. But um, but it was sort of weird. So like the dog would kind of run around, and the orangutan would kind of somersault after it. But it looked very much like the orangutan was the clingy, you know, codependent member of the uh, of the pair, and the dog was because usually the dog is kind of the codependent one in the family, right? But uh, yeah. in this case, the orangutan was like you know the overly attached girlfriend. There's a great one of the orangutan trying to feed the dog a banana. The dog is just having none of this. Oh yeah yeah yeah! I'm looking at that one right now. <laughs> Um, anyway. Okay, so this is a nice segue for my, my, uh, one of my news items, which, as you may have seen from our notes, is about a kind of fish. Uh, it is the, oh god, I don't know how to say this, Mangaharanga Chichitlid? Chichitlid, yeah, I guess. uh, I don't know anything about this, so please discuss while I Google. Ah, so uh, as you can see from my notes, it's a stupid, nearly extinct fish that deserves it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it lives in madagascar or it did okay and uh it's actually kind of a cool looking fish if you imagined like a cartoon of a grumpy old man fish it would look exactly like these things so anyway it lives in these rivers uh which were dammed and you know since its habitat is gone it's slowly d-a-m-m-e-d not like uh well as you'll see from the story both actually <laughs> So, yeah, so their habitat was more or less destroyed, and so they're going extinct. And uh, <laughs> so the zoo, uh, zoos, as they do, try to try to save these endangered species. And yeah. uh, so it was in the news because they're trying to solicit uh, a female fish from collectors. So there are three right. male fish left in captivity, and they're both getting kind of old. Or they're all three are getting kind of old. And they would really, right. really like someone to contribute a female fish so they can breed them and, you know, have more fishes. I think the fish yeah. are like 12 years old, which seems ludicrously old for a fish. I, I, well, for that type of fish, right? Yeah, they're like, you know, goldfishy size. It's not like it's like a tuna. Oh, okay. So these are, I didn't know how big they actually were, yeah. Yeah, so they want to breed more of these right. because, you know, they've got three left and they're, they're getting on. However, the reason it's a stupid, nearly extinct fish that deserves it is because the last time when they tried to breed it with the last known female, uh, the Berlin <laughs> Zoo took one of the males and the female Put them in a bowl, put on, you know, some berry white. Right. And then the male fish devoured the female fish instead of breeding with it. <laughs> Which is like best in show, all-time winner of the Darwin Award. 
to eat, <laughs> to kill and eat the last remaining female of your species. Uh, that's great. So if you have one of these fish and you would like it to be killed and eaten <laughs> so that they go extinct just that much faster, please contact either the Berlin Zoo or the London Zoo, and they would be happy to have your fish eaten for you. That's good to know. Uh, on, a, on a related note, um, I just read, and I think, again, this was on some relatively unsourced place on the internet, such as Reddit. Um, so I don't know if this is true, but apparently there might be ranches in places where you can go to hunt mildly endangered species, but you have to what? pay a lot of money. That's well, horrible. Say, well, no, no. So you, what you do is you, I'm told, and I'm still not sure if this is really true because I haven't bothered to look it up yet, but I'm told that, you know, you pay like, $200,000 to, you know, hunt this endangered species. And, you know, basically, you know, you kill one, but then they use that $200,000 to breed a bunch more and support them. So in the end, your, you know, lust for uh, the most dangerous game actually does. I, damn it. Damn it. I was going to ask if this was on an island run by an old eccentric millionaire. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Do you arrive by uh, shipwreck, do you think? Uh, yes. I think the only way to get there is, uh, yes, by waking up. Uh, in a mysterious place. Oh, that was such a good story. I'm going to reread that later. Um, th there was also, you know, I haven't watched this in years. Do you know that movie, The Freshman? Is that a takeoff of the most dangerous game? No, but to, I was, was going to say, I as I recall, it was a pretty good movie. Um, I think it had Matthew Broderick and um, yeah, Marlon Brando. And um, uh, the basic plot, to the best that I can recall, which is not very well, uh, or a, a large chunk of the plot is that this kid, this you know, youngish guy maybe in his teens or 20s, um, falls in with the mob. But one of the scams that they're running is that they are selling uh, really expensive, really illegal dinners uh, of endangered species to, you know, rich, corrupt people, um, like Komodo dragons and so forth. Those things are terrifying. That's like the one endangered species I'd be okay with hunting. Yeah. Well, a couple of my, my buddy Ian that I work with and his wife just came back from somewhere that they have Komodo dragons, but I didn't really. Is he eye tracking uh, those too? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think they were just staying far away from the Komodo dragons. But, um, but anyway, the, the spoiler alert in case, uh, in case you're listening to this podcast through a time machine to 1994. Um, 1990s. The mo you, you're well okay. past the spoiler limit statute of limitations. Okay, that's good. So they eat Rosebud with Snape. No, well, all the people are like, oh, it's really good. Kind of tastes like chicken. And it turns out that they're really just serving people, you know, chicken and stuff. And the Komodo dragons are safe and sound. So it was just a, a big scam. They were not actually eating. You still there? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm still just pondering the idea of hunting. Oh, I heard a weird bloopy noise. Wasn't me. Sounded like someone was swallowing a nice bite of Komodo dragon. But, uh... <laughs> okay. Um... But anyway, so that, that uh, just reminded me of that movie. But So if you wanted to show off your hunting prowess... Why would you hunt an endangered species? Like, it's clearly not good at escaping you. Yeah, you'd think, you'd think by pure logic those would be the ones that were least good at avoiding predation. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure I could hunt a panda with, like, I don't know, <laughs> like a toothpick? No, the challenge is to seduce the panda, actually, in that case. It's true. They have a really hard time breeding. When I was in college, the National Zoo had uh, some pandas. And I, I'm not making this up. They showed the pandas instructional videos on how to mate. Um, so this is maybe a stupid question. I mean, I have, yeah, the panda porn news story is pretty great. Where do you get the panda porn? Oh, that was not the question I was going I mean, I assume uh -oh. from furries, but um, maybe not. I, I can just imagine, like, showing up at work and they're like, oh, great, great. So you signed up for the retirement plan. Good, good. You got your ID. Okay. 
You're going to need to have sex with a panda while we film it. I feel like there's a black and white and red all over joke somewhere in here that I'm not sure what it is. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but what I was going to ask, and, and again, like we can't get too clinical if this is going to be a uh, non-explicit podcast, but um, I'm told that, you know, there is a way for humans to uh, reproduce without actual contact between a male and a female human. So this is true, I believe. Could one not uh, artificially induce some uh, some conception in the pandas? Or yeah, I don't know why they don't do that. Again, I you know, without getting too clinical, I can realize that there might be certain logistical difficulties in. Um, I mean, you realize uh, that they well, are give, bears. Giving, giving the panda, you know, the uh, the old bamboo shaft treatment, but uh, yeah, I don't think you, you know. can send the male panda into another room with like a, a magazine of. Grizzlies, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, but even once the panda is born, they're just utterly rubbish at staying alive. So apparently, fairly often, the mom rolls over and smooshes her baby. Yeah. And the baby is very small. They called it butter stick because it was butter stick sized. What? Yeah, that's how big a baby panda is. It's like the size of yeah. a stick of butter. And just as tasty. Well, that's why they're endangered. Yes. Um but, um, I mean, yeah, even if they're really stupid about taking care of them, you would think that you could facilitate via, uh, I mean, if you can, if you can um, harvest, let's say harvest seed from uh, an angry bull, I assume, you know, which is regularly done for commercial purposes, I have no idea how. I, I do. It, it's, it's disturbing. Oh, really? They have basically a fake, well, they do it several ways, but they have, oh, one of them is they, they have they, like they, a fake cow. Right, like a cow blow-up doll. Yeah. Okay, enough said, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, let's not dwell on this. Um, anyway, all right. Well, what, how do we get on pandas? Do we have any... Endangered species. Oh, so, so dumb, and the eating dumb thereof. Okay. Um, so before we go much further, we should get back to the introduction that we started. Uh, oh, no, I like my random blind science items. Anyways. No, that, that's yes. good. But anyway, um, so we talked about the name of the podcast. Um, this is episode two. We hope to do more. What else is there to say? We, we should um, talk about ourselves, which is fun. Well, yeah. So we, we last time talked about how you know we know each other from grad school. We're living in Malaysia and Canada, respectively, um, postdocing and professoring and so forth. I was going. To, we could talk about our own research a little bit, although we just did. I mean, we talked a little bit about yours, and we'll have to bleep some of it out for scoopage purposes. Yeah, let's talk. Well, we can talk a little more generally. So uh, I'm interested in. Well, I'm interested in far too many things. But uh, predominantly, I'm interested in sort of computationally hard stuff, uh, which for me means language and vision. So it's things that people are very, very good at and uh, computers are utterly rubbish at. And I'd like to sort of figure out how people do it. And then I'm going to code that up and make computers do it. And then I'm going to become a millionaire and <laughs> hunt people on an island. And then I'm going to be, yeah, exactly. Oh, you beat me. I'm going to buy an island. Yep. Oh, I should have gone with something more subtle. Then I'm going to eat Komodo dragon three times a day. Hmm. Really, all roads lead to the consumption of Komodo dragon. Panda bacon. Um, that would be... I mean, I assume they've got lots of fat on them, so... I've heard that whale, though endangered, actually tastes pretty terrible. Yeah. Well, it, isn't, it is just like pure kind of... It's kind of greasy fat, right? Yeah. It'd be like eating a candle, kind of. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, they're full of oil. Yeah. Um, I also am interested, well, some vision stuff, but mostly my deal is, uh, so I work with humans as opposed to other uh, model animal type things. And uh, 
So I work in a psychology department, but uh, you know, both of our training is technically in neuroscience, or PhDs are in neuroscience. Um, and I do fMRI and EEG and behavioral uh, psychology studies, uh, mostly looking at working memory and specifically like, um, without getting into too much detail, like how people direct um, their, like direct your attention among different thoughts currently held in working memory, which um, as I always say in talks and things like, I think we all assume that like, this is one of those things that you probably get this for, I don't know how much you get this for vision from, you know, people that are uninitiated, but um, one of the things Brian Scholl at Yale always used to say is, you know, when you tell people that you study vision, they're like, what is there to study? You, it's a third of the brain. Well, sorry, right, but people think, you know, your eye is like a camera, right? And they're like, all right, so light goes in the eye and, and you make a picture with your head and that, that's it, right? And like, well, no, not really. The camera doesn't identify what objects are, but you do. So clearly you're doing something the camera couldn't possibly do. I think, oddly, it's gotten easier to sort of explain to people why it's so hard. Now that there's like Google image search, which, you know, sort of works, kind of. I guess that's true, Cameras yeah. that do face detection and stuff. So people see, like, you know, vision is not as easy as you would like it to be. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. I guess I, once you sort of explain it in those terms, they realize that the problem, when you talk about vision, it's not just you know, sensing light and turning that into the sensation of, you know, light. seeing patterns of light. It's knowing what those patterns of light represent in the real world, which is incredibly difficult. Yes, it's, yeah. And to, to plug both of our research, since uh, vision is, and memory is such a sort of a large part of the brain, there's lots of cool clinical applications, right? So it seems to be messed yeah. up in various diseases. Um, yeah, things like that. Yeah, and I mean, and my stuff too, I mean, you know, well, old when people. I'm being yeah. Well, yes, I would. Uh, when I'm being particularly lofty, I want to say that, oh, yeah, we're getting at, you know, the real heart of how thinking works, you know. Um, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. But uh, whose lab has the tag that's like thinking about thinking? Uh, well, I don't know who's I've always I've heard that in a few different contexts. I've always hated that slogan because it seems a little too cute. It sounds like something IBM would have. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It almost sounds. You know what? It might I be Daniel know. Dennett. I'm sure there's a bunch of things that have that little tagline. Um, it, it is a very TED Talk tagline. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> the third Google hit for thinking about thinking is a TED Talk. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thinking about uh, Daniel Kahneman. I actually didn't get TED that. Uh, yeah, you did. It's, it's too below that. Uh, maybe it's not the third. No, no, it's customized for me. This is the thing. This is. I think we were talking about this earlier. You can't anymore talk about like what the top Google hit is for something without telling the world far too much about your own Googling habits because... You know, it's different for everyone now that they're customizing it. Well, mine is all nerd things, and there's an article about chimps. So it's pretty well customized. Um, yeah. Mine is mostly general thinking about thinking stuff, but, uh, you know, and, and occasionally Miley Cyrus fan Th sites. Thinking about Miley Cyrus. Yeah, basically. No, I kid. But, um, you know, that's sort of like my, one of my other science pet peeves. I don't know how often you see this uh, in your field, but for some reason, when I go to a conference... Um, People love to subtitle. Anytime they have three things to talk about in their poster, they love to subtitle their poster, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it almost never is actually about a good, a bad, and an ugly phenomenon. But they just try to shoehorn that in as much as possible, and it just drives me nuts. It's funny you mention that, because I just saw, I think via Brandon Liverance, that things with like cutesy titles like that get cited less, as they deserve. Yeah. Well, I mean, so perfect segue here. Um, I mean, this is sort of, you know, what 
A, what we sort of talked about with the title of our podcast, right? Like you wanted something that's... Catchy, but not obnoxious. Cute and clever and like a little bit, uh, much like our cover art, which I don't know how you feel about our cover art, but uh, more than one person has said to me, uh, okay, it's just the right amount of cheesy, you know? Yes, um, that warms my heart for some reason. You, you know what I mean? Like it's meant to not look like super classy, but also not... It doesn't look like um, like Nancat or or like an Angel Fire uh, website from the nineties. Oh, you just dated yourself there. Yeah. Um, but um, so the the title of our paper. Uh, so I, I was going to say, like, if you want to, you know, read more about our research. Uh, I have a paper that j- is in press right now that just came out that I'm I'm feeling pretty good about. Oh, congratulations! And you also have something. Well, you have one that you sent in, right? But, I was supposed uh, to hear last week, uh, but I did not. Okay, so stay tuned for that one, maybe. But uh, Yes, so I'll be obsessively checking my email for, well, until I get an, an answer I like. Yeah. But, it, it, yeah, if you want to get more, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about my own stuff, but basically, um, you know this effect that we found, right? So it's this effect basically looking at um, if you show people two things and have them hold them in memory and then cue them to think about one of those things, um, and then right after you cue them to think about one of those things, you show one of them on the screen that they have to identify, uh, like by pressing a button or saying the name of the thing out loud. Um, you would think probably intuitively that whatever you were just thinking about, you'd be faster to identify. But it turns out that at least at certain time intervals, the opposite is true. So if you just thought about something, you're actually temporarily inhibited from responding to it. Oh, this is your IOR result. Yeah. So we, we liken this to, uh, thank you for the... Uh, Thank you for the set, and I will now volley or spike or whatever. Um, I'm clearly not a golfer. Um, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> obviously, I'm not a golfer. Um, but, um, yeah, so the, this effect called inhibition of return in vision is sort of a similar thing with, with when you do visual search, right? Like if you move your eyes around, you tend to not return them to the same location like twice in a row, because obviously if you're searching for something, it makes sense to search for different places, right? You wouldn't just go back and forth between the same two places. Like if you're looking for your keys, you don't look on the table, then on the bed, then on the table, then on the bed, then on the table, then on the bed, right? You look- so, so science-wise, I agree with you, but I actually do do that. Well, you do that. I mean, if you're talking about real foraging strategies, obviously there's a, you know, you search the couch cushions, you don't find your keys. Then you go all around the rest of your house checking all the usual suspects. Then at some point, it's been long enough, and you're like, well, maybe it's my, maybe I should check the couch cushion again, right? Um, and that's obviously what you do in visual search also, right? You do tread, retread ground, but you don't do it immediately, right? There's a certain trade-off between, like, and I suspect it has to do with, like, how salient the location is, right? Like, if you actually lose your keys, you might check the, the table where you usually put your keys several times, more times than you might check, like, under your bed, because your keys would not often get under your bed. Um, but you will still space the checks out, right? You won't, like, there's a certain tension between... Oh, yeah, you don't, you don't like, check the table, walk away, check the table again, walk away, yeah. Right. Um, so there's a certain tension between, like, how salient or likely the place is to have the information you want and how long ago you have last examined it, but... Anyway, that's all sort of beyond the point. Um, but, but they refer to this effect in vision um, as a potential foraging facilitator, meaning exactly that. Like if you're foraging for food or something like that, you obviously want to check novel locations and not return to the same location over again. And basically our position is that this might be the same thing in thought. 
uh, that you know some mechanism has to keep your thoughts moving forward in your brain so that you don't like return to the same thought over and over again. You want the basic arrow of time in your head moving forward, right, to new things, not just back to the same thing over and over again. Um, so anyway, all that is to say that the uh, title of our paper is Foraging for Thought, colon, an inhibition of return-like effect in working memory or something like that. I should probably know it, but I'm paraphrasing it. Um, that's not overly cutesy or anything. I, I feel like that's, again, I think that's the exact right, at least my feeling is that it's the exact right amount of cuteness. You know what I mean? Like it is, it's a little bit like deliberately catchy, but it's not so deliberately catchy that it feels like you're trying too hard, right? No, that's, I think that's, I mean, it's also very short. Like you haven't added any extraneous stuff there. I mean, it also succinctly, it makes it a little, it might make it like hook into a, might make it sound like a little bit too cute of an explanation of what is actually kind of a more complicated effect, but... Yeah, but when you give your TED Talk, you're all set. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is, it's, it's sort of the TED version of, you know... Um, so do you know much about foraging? I have a foraging question, then. Um, I don't... Can we... Well, before we get off this totally... Um, well, go ahead and ask the foraging question, and then I'll rant, because I actually do want to table this for, for the moment, but I'll make a note. Go ahead. So, so does the foraging strategy change if it's something that can like move around by itself or grow back? Do you know? Because like you know, when you forage for food, the blueberries aren't there today; they might be there next week. But you know, your car keys are not going to like suddenly grow on the couch, even though that's where right. they're most probable to be. Uh, so your question is like, does the type of information? Well, does your strategy? I guess does your strategy change if you think that the thing is also moving and has some? It must. If... Um, I mean, yes, I think. Obviously, like your knowledge of what's going on, I think this is one of those questions, I mean, not to poo-poo the question, but I think it's probably going to be one of those questions that the answer is like... Depending on your assumptions. <laughs> yes, depending on your assumptions, and the answer is so complex that like, there's no like really systematic way, because obviously there are a million different things you could be looking for. Um, you know, if you're Bono, he's been foraging for some time and still hasn't found what he's looking for. <laughs> um, Oh, I couldn't cue that up fast enough in iTunes. All right, well, sorry. as I said on the Twitter, you know, maybe if he'd take off those weird colored glasses, he'd be able to find what he's looking for a bit easier. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, certainly that makes a difference, right? Because if you are looking, you obviously know that if you're looking for your keys, you could check the freezer. And, you know, that's always like the wacky, like, guess what my mom did when she was drunk? She put her keys in the freezer, haha. But, you know, realistically, you wouldn't normally check your freezer for keys. Right. You know, so obviously some kind of semantic knowledge comes into play. But like how you would systematically, you know, like divide that into like classes of objects that drive different behaviors, I'm not sure what that would be. No, I guess my question was slightly different, which was okay. like uh, how much the foraging strategy depends on what you're foraging for, the properties of whatever you're foraging for. Well, that's what I mean. But I'm just saying like there are, you know, millions of things that you could forage for and they would each probably have a different strategy. But how would you like systematically ask that question? You know what I mean? Like, would you say food versus non-food items? Oh, well, I guess I was thinking sort of mobile or regenerating items versus oh, not. Oh, right. Yeah, you were saying mobile versus non-mobile. Um, I mean, there must be data on this because people forage for food and they also forage for like, I don't know, stones. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, if you're talking about a uh, sentient enough thing, like even things like theory of mind are going to come into play, right? Like if you're playing, I mean, essentially, if you're playing like uh, a first-person shooter video game, you're doing a form of foraging. If you're looking for members of the other team to shoot, 
and you're going to you know think things like okay well oh that's the perfect experiment i just need a bunch of college students who will play video so you, games would they be more likely to return to the same location over and over again if they're searching for actually that could work pretty well you could have a first person shooter type game with two goals shoot the other team and you know find the the macguffin object yeah exactly that's exactly what i was thinking so so you the macguffin like presumably doesn't move around but like i don't know I don't really play first-person shooters, but like I guess health packs, like you know, sort of appear randomly. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that would be. I guess the perfect condition would be, you know, you sort of have a balance between things that randomly respawn that are inanimate, like health packs, things that don't change location, um, but are hidden, like the flag that you're supposed to capture to win or something like that, and then uh, you know, humans you're supposed to uh, pursue, right? To uh, Yes, which respawn them. and and move. Yeah. Yes. All right. Now we just need a bunch of video games. Now nobody steal our idea. <laughs> but I mean, yes, I think there certainly would be different strategies. But again, it would sort of depend on I think what your priorities are, and so forth. But yeah, you could figure out some way to balance it appropriately. I guess so that I guess you, what you could really do here's what you do is you like alter the weights, uh, like how many points or whatever, how much. Well, if you're doing an experiment, you probably change how much you're going to pay the person based on like if you make the MacGuffin worth you know a hundred dollar payment but killing an enemy only worth five dollars they're going to primarily bias their search strategy towards hunting for the MacGuffin right whereas if you make killing an enemy worth a hundred dollars and the MacGuffin only worth five they're going to mostly hunt for other humans so you could do it that way so that you could kind of see how their search strategy changes based on the uh, values of the items. I should just note that this is the second of three items that involve hunting humans. We're nice people. <laughs> Third time's the charm. Yeah, so please send your uh, <laughs> t- send your address and door code combinations too. Yeah. H M M at gmail.com. We have never actually hunted humans so far. I thought that's why you moved to Malaysia. Well, I was just going to say, if anywhere you could get away with it, it would probably be here. But I have not yet... They don't let foreigners, uh, I think they don't let expats own guns in this country, uh, which sometimes when I'm on the highway is an excellent idea, actually. Yeah. Anyway. They um, don't hunt orangutans, do they? That would be sad. I don't think so. They're pretty slow and non-tasty, I think. So, so what I was going to say, actually, so first of all, thanks for mentioning our email address, uh, but we'll do that again at the end of the show, because we didn't drop our website or email address or anything, I don't think, but we'll maybe do that closing. Um, but one thing I was going to say is, uh, you probably have this too, like, we always complain as, as scientists, neuro or otherwise, you know, like when you read really bad science journalism, you know, that's every advance, you know, everything that kills cancer cells in a dish is like a new cure for cancer and so forth, right? Like, the, the journalism always wants to make the thing sound more exciting and cool than it does. Yeah, or journalists are way less bitter than we are. Yeah, but well, that's the thing is... And even for us, who we have, you know, most journalists, although they may be very smart, most of them don't have, like, PhDs in the area, right? So to some extent, they're, um, they're you know, they're batting a little bit outside of their, uh, that's, not the, that's not the sports metaphor I'm looking for. What is it? Um, like, playing a little outside of their league, but there's a, an expression for that. Um, yeah, for, like, playing a little bit outside of your, you know, current level of skill. But anyway, I can't think of it. To, like, bump up to the majors? I don't think it's a baseball analogy. Um, 
They get to second base. You know, it's like when you're trying to date a girl that's like a little bit too attractive for you. I can't, there's a name, there's a phrase for that, but I can't think of it. Oh. Uh, but something about like playing above your level, right? Ironically, there's a phrase for not being able to think of something, and I can't think of that either. Yeah, the tip of the tongue effect, but it's in Greek, I believe, right? Yeah. Oh man, this is going to bug me. Well, you can look it up. I mean, uh, the, 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 there's a subreddit for that. Um, tip of the tongue effect. I think it's Greek. It starts with G, I think. Hmm. I thought there was a subreddit for this. There is. It's tip of my tongue or something. Wow, there's like a frightening amount of research on this, which must be really yeah. awkward at conferences. It's like, oh, I had a really cool result. Uh. <laughs> I'm sure they never make jokes like that. Just like how we always wanted to go up to eat at the at Society for Neuroscience. They always have the Alzheimer's social. It has karaoke. We have to go one year. Well, I, I think I, you know, we, I can't remember which of us originally had the idea that uh, we wanted to just go up and introduce ourselves to the same person, you know, 10 or 12 times until they got the joke. Wait, no, you never told me that. I... Oh, really? That's, that's all I want to do with the Alzheimer's social is just, you know, walk around introducing myself to people and you know, pretending I forgot them and going around and doing it again. <laughs> and I always thought it was horrible. They had karaoke. That's even better. <laughs> you, should, you should try to give the speech at the, the social. I just introduced the speaker over and over again. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think you were the one that taught me the phrase uh, l'esprit d'escalier, which, of course, is now all I can think of. Ironically, I have not had occasion to use that since I moved to a French-speaking country. Oh, that's too bad. Um, but that's not quite... No, that's when you come up with something witty, like, right after the podcast ends, for example. Right. That's when you can't think of something to say in the moment, but it doesn't mean you're trying to remember something. Yeah. Well, it's more like when you would come up with a great retort as you're, you know, descending the stairs on your way home. You know, would it be too meta to submit what is the tip of the tongue phenomenon that might be a Greek word? It's got to be somewhere in the subreddit. We'll figure it out later. Ooh, ooh, here's a, here's a list of 50 <laughs> or 45 different ways to say it. Oh, I have to log into the VPN. Uh, all right, well, you do that while I make the point that I was trying to make in the first place, which was... But even like you and I, who have the PhD and you know have a little bit more specific training in the journalists, I think we have different levels that we can talk about our stuff on, right? And there's sort of the level that I just kind of gave and you just kind of gave, which is like the cocktail party, um, layman's explanation, and the explanation that makes something sound, you know, really cool uh, if you phrase it right. And then there's sort of the really dry. We showed people some words on a screen and gave them an arrow cue, and then they had to say one of the words aloud, which makes it sound like you don't study anything interesting at all, right? Oh, yeah. So I hate this in the U.S., right? There's this sort of budget debate, and uh, I can't remember his name either. The guy from Oklahoma likes to pick out projects and just like ridicule yeah. them, either by making them sound incredibly boring or incredibly uh, like stupid. And the, the thing is you can do it to you know whatever you'd like. Yeah. Oh, we're going to see if bread mold will make you not sick anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to put a bunch of bicycle parts together and we're going to try to fly. We're going to put a man on that big wedge of cheese. <laughs> God, I um, hate him. Yeah, I mean, but that's the problem, right? Is when they're like, why are we spending all this money to study fruit flies? You know, we're not studying fruit flies because we think fruit flies are, well, probably there's a couple people out there that think fruit flies are, flies are really just awesome by themselves, but... You know, mostly we are studying fruit flies to understand the basic principles of things like genetics and biochemistry, right? Well, actually, that was a perfect example because he went off on the fruit fly people. 
And yeah, so, so they're super useful for genetics. And they're also a big problem if you, you know, grow fruit. Yeah. But, you know, that's clearly a waste of money because no one right. grows or eats fruit in the U.S. Right. And they don't seem to like it if you say, well, the alternative is, you know, we can cut up a bunch of babies if you like. But uh, the fruit flies are really much cheaper and uh, yeah, that, people respond to that better. That baby infestation. So this is interesting. Um, annoyingly, it does not give the actual uh, name of this. But in 41 languages... It's like a tongue metaphor. So it's it's on the tongue, on the tip, <laughs> point, head of the tongue, on the top of the tongue in Irish, figures, yeah. on the front of the tongue in Welsh, just to be different, sparkling at the end of the tongue in Korean, which is kind of awesome. I kind of like that, yeah. That sounds like a good name for a pop song, a K-pop song. It probably is already. Yeah. <laughs> Consult the Gangnam Style guy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the, there are no uh, sort of Icelandic, as you would be not at all surprised to learn, is the only one that doesn't use a tongue metaphor. <laughs> oh, it just use a, uses a long yelp in the style of Bjork, right? Yeah, yeah. It's on the, t- on the tip of the swan dress. <laughs> what was that Bjork song I was trying to remember the other day? It's like... <laughs> yeah, so no Icelandic. Not in uh, sign language. Insert your own joke here. <laughs> <laughs> what, well, wait a minute. What, what is the phrase in sign language? It's hard to write down. Well, no, I, but does it translate to something? Is there a metaphor for it in sign language? Like, it's, it's right on the tip of my hand. No, that's the annoying thing about this table. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't give you the translation, so you can, can't see if it's, like, on the tip of my hand or something. Okay. And Indonesian. So you should capture yourself in Indonesian and ask them. Uh, it does or does not. They don't. They're one of the five languages that doesn't use a tongue metaphor. Oh, but they, so they give the phrase, but they don't give... Um... No, they just say that they don't. There's a table of yes and no. Oh, Okay. That's a bummer. Um, all right. Well, I mean, you know that Indonesian is basically the same language as Malay, so um, I can ask someone what that means. All right. Um, I'll remember that. Well, I'll remember that because we're still recording this. I have to stop remembering. I don't need to take notes on this stuff. I just wrote it down. So anyway, uh, I, I guess I should mention, actually, while I'm thinking about it, I, I actually wrote, uh, I should probably post this somewhere. Maybe I will. Um, somebody in Malaysia was putting together this book that I wrote a chapter for, which I think there's a pretty fair chance it'll never nobody will ever actually get around to publishing this. So I should maybe just post my manuscript online. But I mean, I, it was sort of a, uh, a neuroscience, like just primer and some, some, some of my thoughts on neuroscience for people that are non-experts. But that was one of the things I talked about is like how you, how you talk about this stuff. Cause you don't want to, you have to be tricky both with other scientists and with the general public. Cause you don't want to only say like, the really boring thing you found, like, oh, we found this reaction time effect, you know, that certain things are slower than other things by like 20 milliseconds, because that's not that interesting, or doesn't sound that interesting, but, you know, you don't want to spin it too hard either. So it's sort of, it's a tricky, tricky line to walk. Yeah. Well, especially since I think when you talk to science, particularly other scientists, there's a little bit of a blowback when you're like, so my research on whatever is going to cure Alzheimer's cancer and whiten your teeth. You're like, uh, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but at the same time, you know, uh, I mean, this is, I re- you run into this a lot teaching class, right? I mean, uh, I, think w- I think one of the points I was trying to make in that chapter was you have to keep in mind, like, uh, I think our undergrads, no, hello, undergrads, if you're listening, uh, I love you all. But, you know, one thing that's true when you're first starting to study something is your idea, you know, as I said to someone uh, recently, like, I think I've said this many times before, higher education is really all about the... It's, it's the process of gradually lowering, lowering your expectations as to what you think is interesting, right? Mm, I think there's sort of like a... In some ways, at least. There's like two phases. 
How so? I don't know. I feel like when I initially get ex- excited about everything, right? Because you don't know anything about it. You're like, oh my God, yeah. you can get a bird to tweet like on command. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, lame. It's just like this other paper. And then you sort yeah. of come back around. You're like, oh, that's actually like a nice little advance. Well, that's true. There is a bit of an oscillation, but you know what I mean? Like most of the stuff that we get excited about, we're like, that's a really cool paper. People would be like, okay, so what's the big deal? You know a little bit more about how eye movements are generated or something, right? Or is I going with this? We're more ADD than usual tonight. Would you say it's on the tip of your tongue? Yeah. Um, oh, so anyway, but you know, what's tricky is, of course, um, and again, not to like uh, take a big poop on what any of our colleagues do, but you know, the the work that people who are just starting out think is really cool is often the stuff that has like cool looking stimuli, right? Or like something people might say like. If again, like the, our undergrads are not like this, but uh, you know, somebody who doesn't know anything about psychology or or neuroscience might want to be like, oh, I want to study like what makes you fall in love or how our brains generate music, right, or something like that. And there are things you can do in those areas, but like a lot of these things, if you know a little bit about the topic, like they're actually hard to study and say anything really interesting about them that is not completely common sense that you can tell just by looking around, right? Mm, yeah, I guess. I mean, everyone likes their own level of abstraction, right? Like, you know. It, this is true also. You don't want to mess with cells. I don't want to mess with, like, ion channels, I guess. Yeah. Sometimes I do. This is true, but you know what I mean? Like, just because, an ex- in other words, a cool result in terms of what it tells us about, like, how the brain works does not necessarily have a flashy way of doing the experiment, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, because, like, I have... I have uh, colleagues, again, like my pal Ian, you know, who studies things about facial attractiveness and so forth from kind of an evolutionary psychology perspective. And he may listen, so we can't poo-poo evolutionary psychology as much as we might normally. Oh, come on. I've evolved to. I've evolved to make fun of it. (laughs) It's a competition for limited resources. It's true. And this is how you get the ladies. (laughs) Uh, Tell me more. I just summarized evolutionary psychology in 30 seconds. You're all welcome. You know, so a lot of the students want to do projects in like with him in that area, not to say that his work is not cool, but, um, you know, people think it's cooler, certainly to do something like, you know, looking at like pretty faces and what makes them pretty versus like how do the rods and cones work? Or maybe people want to make like really cool visual illusions, right? But you can make a really cool looking visual illusion that doesn't tell us anything new about how the visual system works, right? That's true. Ooh, did I, did I tell you the cool illusion I saw, though? <laughs> no. Oh, this, this, is, this is both a cool illusion and a scientifically valuable thing. We should okay. put this on the website. Um, it's from Eero Simoncelli's lab. So okay. they call them, they call them uh, like, what do they call them? Ventral stream metamers. Yeah. So they have this model of the visual system, right? Okay. And they basically take it and they pump a bunch of noise in it and they wait till it comes back to the same state. Yeah. So you get all these pictures that when you fixate on the center, they look exactly the same, but they're scaled so that your, you know, your peripheral vision gets like increasingly worse as you move away from your center of gaze. Okay. And so the distortion is scaled just so, so that it matches, uh, so that you can't tell that the image is actually distorted. It's really cool. Okay. I'd ha- I think I'd have to see it to sort of understand, but yeah, if you can find a link, let's post it. Um, I mean, we don't have, I mean, is there more to talk about it or shall we just kind of like post the link and talk about it later? Well, it's just... It's just really, it's a cool technique. 
Well, anyway, while, while you're looking at that, um, I think all I was saying, maybe I'll post uh, a draft of that chapter and link to it. Uh, I don't know that I say anything particularly insightful, but um, it is, I think, you know, it's a little bit of a crusade of mine because not to toot my own horn too much, but like some of the results we've got, like this one, I think could be very cool results, but they look totally boring in how you actually test for them, right? It's just words on a screen, um, which is not nearly as cool looking as like, here's a bunch of faces of varying levels of prettiness. But you know what I mean? Like th those could be very cool studies of uh, pretty faces, or they could just be, you know, moderately cool studies of pretty faces. But how cool the study looks on the face of it does not necessarily correlate to like how cool of a thing it tells you about. <laughs> on the face of it. About nature. Well, yes. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was just sort of my point. Um, and, but it's very tricky, I think, like, because you, at the same time, you also don't want to make your work look too cute, but you do need to make it appealing in various ways also. And it's, it's really tricky to walk that line. Yeah, that's one of these skills I need to learn while I'm doing a postdoc. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, all right. So we'll post this later and maybe talk about it later. We're getting on in uh, minutes, uh, and I can oh, hang true. out forever, but... I should go to work at some point. Well, we didn't get through, like, you know, 1% of the topics. that we, we actually did research, and then, of course, discussed none of the topics. Well, no, I, I, got, I got to talk about my stupid fish. That's true. Um, I, we did the intro. We talked about our own research. Do you know anything about the cicadas? This is a thing that I should know about as I got stuck in a cicada storm in college, but... Uh... I was just going to discuss, like, I, I actually just wanted to ask you if the cicadas make it, they don't make it all the way up to Canada, do they? No, nothing lives here, except it's all ice and snow, and uh, there are polar bears, and I ride a moose to work. Ah, cool. True story. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I haven't noticed bull. any cicadas. Bull. 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 That's the, that's the mating call of a moose. I was actually trying to remember the moose noise the other day. <laughs> Uh, I can still do it pretty so we um I guess we can tell the story right uh, oh yeah quickly well I mean we not for reasons of like it's dirty but just for time purposes but uh we were going to a wedding up in um I guess this was Toronto right with a bunch of our neuro friends and uh, I had heard years ago on like a radio show uh, this guy telling the story of like how he was hunting for moose and he mentioned that like one way that you get the moose near to you is you uh you make a call that is like a a, a lady moose in an, in an amorous mood and uh and you will get a, a boy moose hopefully attracted to you if you make the noise well enough anyway the noise was something like bleh, bleh, bleh. like sort of like you're like burping up breakfast a little bit if you ate a bit too much uh, and we did this i would say for what about 300 miles well it's probably not 300 miles about no it's more than 300 miles well we definitely did it for about 100 miles until everybody else wanted to kill us and so and you know the three or four days we were up here too. Yeah, but we actually. So, oh, I made this sound once around Lisa, and she wanted to kill me. So I think cool. mission accomplished. <laughs> um, Lisa's a listener of our podcast, actually. So hello, Lisa. We love you, Lisa Thomas. But you shouldn't make the moose noise too loudly. They may come into my apartment on the eighth floor, and that's true. So yes, everyone knows that that Canada is. You know, moose are basically the the rats of Canada, right? So they're just everywhere. Uh, <laughs> You hang up moose traps in your apartment, I imagine. Yeah, no, I've just embraced it now. They just they just run around. I, I leave out okay. blueberries for them to eat. Oh, that's good. Have you ever actually seen a moose? They're enormous. I know they're. I don't know that I've. I must have come across one at a zoo or something at some point, but I. It's. I don't know that I've ever been too close to one. They're huge. They're probably about a thousand pounds. Yeah, and the squirrels they hang out with not actually as big as they look on TV. Well, you know, since communism sort of collapsed. Yeah. The squirrel's more or less gone extinct. 
There actually is a line. This would be a good project. Which is funny because they do wear those helmets to protect their heads, but <laughs> apparently that doesn't help very much. So if you drive around near Montreal, like at some point yeah. the sign does switch from deer crossing to moose crossing. Oh, yeah. But like it, it's weird. It was like 40 minutes out last weekend I was driving and on the highway it goes like deer, 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 deer. And then all of a sudden it switches to moose and bear. So is this like uh, – is this segregationism? Is this is this uh, gerrymandering of li- of four-legged animals in Canada? I don't know if the moose want to succeed or something. It's entirely possible. I mean is, is the first moose to you know cross the deer crossing instead of the moose crossing? Is that like the moose Rosa Parks? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so my brother had a – my brother worked as a sort of a wildlife biologist in Alaska. And he had a coworker who – who was also, you know, sort of save the planet type, who bought a car, who, who yeah. bought a, sorry, who bought a brand new Prius as part of his, you know, overall save the planet right. thing. And he drove it as much as possible to save as much fuel as he could. It's even better than that, actually. He had it for, okay. he had it for like a day and then a moose stepped on it. <laughs> I really hope he bought like uh, a, an F-150 or something afterwards. Yeah, something moose-proof. No, something, you know, stick it to the planet. This thing only runs on whale oil. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you actually have to feed the baby seals directly into the furnace. It's a real pain, but... It, it only takes the premium baby seals. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to tell the story. Like, I've, I, this may be an urban myth, but I'm sure these people do exist of the people that ask, you know, how the deer know to cross at the deer crossing sign, um, which... I'm not sure if there actually are people that dumb, but I've certainly heard that story multiple times. And I actually, I do hope it is true that somebody is actually that dumb out there. I actually just saw this, this list of things that people believed sort of improbably long. And that was, that was one of the more popular ones. Like, you know, growing up, I always wondered how the deer knew to cross there. And my oh, dad yeah. said he trained them. The, the <laughs> other related, like weirdly popular misconception is that Alaska is yeah. an island because it's always by itself on the map. <laughs> oh, so they think it actually hangs out there next to Hawaii. Yep. Why is it so cold? It's always right there next to Hawaii. Uh, that's funny. Um, I mean, I have a couple things that right. we're going to get to. Do, do, your, do, do one of your items. Well, so, okay. So one of them to back up. Uh, this is something you should know um, probably better than me. So if you look up like, like a color wheel. A- oh, so this, this is going to lead into my rant. Can I start with my rant? Uh, it depends. What's your rant? So this is, this is a rant you can join in on, actually. So, okay. so as, uh, I, guess, I guess we're expats? Yeah, we are both expats. So I imagine you're also subjected to this weird phenomenon where there's like a, a public announcement that seems to go on for like minutes in uh, French for me, uh, Malay for you. And then sometimes you get an English translation afterwards. And the English translation is like two words. Yeah, it's like the old, it's like the old Bugs Bunny cartoon where, uh, you know, you get the subtitle of the dude talking in the crazy language. And, you know, he'll talk for like two minutes and it'll be just like, okay. And, and then, you know, of course, he'll say like one word in... In moon language, and uh, you know, then it'll be like the opening paragraph to A Tale of Two Cities, and everyone laughs. But yes, yes. So, so that happens to me all the time here. Like, so uh, the McGill University Health Center is like, I think, tries to be very hard to be bilingual. So, the, yeah. so there'll be an announcement about like how there's a, a fire in the the uh, machine room, or how we just had this thing where you couldn't drink the water because of a problem with the reservoir. And there's a French announcement that goes on for like several minutes, and then the guy switches to English, and he's like, "Please boil your water before drinking." Which yeah. slightly freaks me out because I'm always wondering if they're saying like, now, comrades, let's get the Anglos. Yeah. Well, you know, I get this a lot. <clears throat> I mean, I see this some 
Um, I notice it a lot when I go to see um, movies because, um, I mean, I don't think it's a, an insult to the Malay language to say that it's like a less, it certainly has a smaller vocabulary, a simpler syntax than English, and it is, uh, as far as I can tell, much less strewn with metaphors. Um, you know, it's not nearly as colorful a language as English is, right? Because English has spent hundreds of years borrowing phrases from other languages and such. So now it's, you know, it's got this huge vocabulary and very rich, like, metaphorical dictionary metaphors that are part of the language, right? So you'll often see, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. You go to the movie that's in English, and you'll see something like, some, somebody will say something like, I'm on it, partner, or, you know, something like that, or already rue. And of course, the translation in Malay will just be something like, ya, or, <laughs> which, is, which is Malay for yes, right? So I think a lot of times they're just like, the translation, there's, it's not like Seamus Haney translating Beowulf trying to, or, or, you know, some great translation of Homer's Odyssey or something like that, where they're trying to translate while preserving... Like the feel. You know, the flavor, the, yeah. The gestalt, if you will. If I will. Um, right, exactly. Uh, they're trying to still convey the zeitgeist of uh, whoever said it. Um, ha-ha. Jawohl. Um, I'm out of German. <laughs> Peffernus? But, yeah, sure, why not? But I, I think for more straightforward things, like, you know, if you go to see, like, Batman in the theaters, you maybe would like to hear the more colorful you know, phrase, but it doesn't really impede your understanding of Batman, right? Um, the way that, like, you know, you wouldn't want to read a crappy translation of Ulysses, really, because that would kind of defeat the point. So I think they just ordinarily, like, take out all of the flavor and leave you with just boil it down to, like, all you need to know to advance the plot, essentially. Yeah, so I was actually wondering this, like, uh, which, which language is most efficient? And it turns out oh. it's surprisingly hard to, uh, it's surprisingly hard to find out. yeah. Well, that's interesting because, you know, I always used to have this kind of pet theory, which was, un un this was like when I was an undergrad and didn't know anything about anything. You know, my pet theory was kind of like, well, is there some kind of conservation law of complexity in languages, right? So like English, for example, has a very complicated <clears throat> or very large vocabulary, but a, a relatively simple syntax, right? I mean, like we don't have, our tenses are very uncomplicated in English. We don't have a lot of... Um, voices or anything like that, right? I mean, you got a few, right? But like the case structure, the grammar is not nearly as complicated as it is, say, in German. Or, you know, I think we often think of Spanish as being a, well, I don't know if you think of it as being a simple language. It feels simpler um, vocabulary-wise. Oh, God, it has, it has so many friggin' tenses, though. Well, exactly. But it, yeah, so it's like Spanish is, or Italian are good examples of like, I guess I would say like the spelling and the... Um, there are fewer sounds in Spanish and Italian than there are in English, right? And like the the sonic structure of words is much simpler. Oh yeah, well there's a there's a really good example, right? Like Chinese has really really simple grammar. You just sort of slam things together. You don't really worry about right. tenses. But you <clears throat> know, Malay is the same way. Yeah. But you know, like the Chinese, well the Chinese phonology is awful. There are all the tones which I can't really do justice right. to. But like ma and ma and ma. Yeah, it's ma and. Ma? Ma. Ma. I can only do it if I make the, like, the hand gesture while I, it corresponds with the tone, which makes me look yeah, like Yeah, because like the rising, the falling, the always high, and the down and up again, I think, are the four, right, that are in Mandarin? Well, there are, it depends on the... I think Cantonese has seven. Yeah, but in standard Mandarin, they're the four, yeah. I believe. 
Yeah. Right. So, so you double up on those. And then obviously the, the writing is just like, like a yeah. total gong show. Right. Not, not to uh, be racist or anything. <laughs> I hadn't even connected that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I should say that I know this because I received a gentleman's C in Japanese. Despite, uh, despite okay. trying ludicrously hard to learn how to write uh, the kanji, which are the borrowed Chinese characters, yeah. I was awful at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, got, I got a gentleman's C- minus in French, but that's because I slept through class about two-thirds of the time. <laughs> oh, no, I, well, I tried to go to Japanese all the time, but, oh, God. So many things to memorize. Yeah. Anyways, so, uh, yeah, so I was wondering this, and there's some interesting results. So I guess one way you could look yeah. at how sort of complex the different languages are is you could take something that's translated into, like, every language, and then you could try to compress it with, like, a, you know, like, PKZIP or WinZIP. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you would think that Chinese, for example, is about half the size. So if you take the Bible, which for right. religious reasons people have translated into, like, every possible language. Right. Um, or so the Bible is good for this and the UN is also re really good for mostly this of producing like right. sort of parallel texts in different languages. All right. So someone actually did this, they downloaded a bunch of, they downloaded a bunch of translations of the Bible and you know, right. so the Chinese one is about half the size of the English one in terms of well, bytes. But I mean the Chinese one, obviously each character is a different word, right? Well, there's like two or three uh, characters per word. You get a lot of like well, weird right. compounding. Or, yeah. I mean, that's true. Right. Yeah. But, or each syllable, I should say, is a word, uh, is a character, right? But at what level? I mean, that's tricky, right? Because, I, well, I guess it, it still works, right? Because there's a certain number of bits required to specify. Well, you have to include the whole dictionary character. too, right? Right. It's just very tricky. Well, go ahead, but what what are the results? And then I'll raise my qualms. Oh, so the interesting thing is, there's lots of variance in terms of uh, like the the raw text. In terms of its length, right. or it's, you can think about its its size, and then when you compress them down, they all end up being about exactly, almost exactly the same size. So Chinese goes from That's like point, I think it's point four six for the Bible to like you know about point eight nine or something high like that. Yeah, and everything uh, compared compared to English, and right. you know other languages do more or less the same. That's kind of interesting. So that's that's true in a certain sense. Well, what I was going to say is one issue with that is, of course, that it's written, right? And yeah, so English, English is bad for this, right? Because there's a lot of ways to write the same, right? The whole, like, George Bernard Shaw, fish could be spelled G-H-O-T-I if you take the G-H from tough and uh, the I, or the what the O from women and uh, the T-I from any T-I-O-N word, right? And that spells fish. So, I mean, it, it feels like a better way might be to take something like that and translate it into a phonetic representation. Well, so that's what I was trying to do. Well, uh, let me add one more step in between. So th yeah. that, that assumes, you know, a sort of character by character model. Um, but what yeah. you really want to know is the sort of information you need. So uh, do you know Claude Shannon, the information theory guy? Yeah, yeah. So, so for our listeners, I should add that he is like, if you ever are casting a mathematician for something, please download his AT&T portrait and just use that. He's like the most evil geniusy math type person I can imagine. It's, it's an awesome photo. I'll see if I can post that. His, I've, I'm, yeah, I'm looking at his Google image search, but I don't see the specific. Is it the one where he's like with the little maze thing? I'm just, I'm just thinking of there's one where it's like a close-up of his head and some eyebrows. He does have like, uh, what is his name? Sam Waterston kind of eyebrows? Yes. Yes, I think that's it. No. Yeah, there's one where he does look. Ah, it's here. I'll send it to you. 
It's the one on Ask Andy about It looks about like it's clothes. got a skyline in the back. No, he's in front of a rack of telephones. I think we're looking at the same one, but okay, yes, he does look like an evil genius. I mean, he sort of was. So just by way of background, he worked for Bell Labs, uh, or I guess it was yep. AT&T then. And he invented this whole sort of uh, branch of math to characterize the information content of things. Right. right so Bell is... In the I mean, he's the father of information theory, right? Yes, so. he's like the father, the mother, uh, probably the grandfather, maybe an aunt or uncle too. He, he uh, immaculately conceived the information theory. Yeah, uh, pretty much. That, that's, that's pretty fair. Yeah. Uh, so he did this cool experiment where he took uh, sentences and then he had people play this sort of guessing game. Yeah. So you can estimate sort of the, the number of yes or no questions, the number of bits that it takes to come up with the next character in, in a sentence. And okay. it, it's like about – it's so he had sort of a range and it was between about two-thirds of a bit to one and a half bits uh, okay. for English. And it looks like other languages are in the ballpark, although weirdly like this sort of neglected – but you're right that the real way to do this would be to look at the, the phonemes, like the different sounds. I mean, if, you, if your question is how efficient is the language in terms of, you know, the natural, because writing is not natural, right? So, but speech is in some sense biological and natural. So, yeah, I mean, the way to do it, I think, would be to translate it into uh, a standard phonemic uh, representation and then see how well that compresses. Yes, so I have that uh, for you. No one's done this, which is weird and could be an easy yeah. paper if one of our listeners would like to help me out here. Uh, so I have an English uh, pronouncing dictionary, but I can't find one for other languages. So if anyone has one, please send it my way. Um, there's got to be, because they've got things like Siri in other languages, right? So there clearly has to be... Yeah, but I think Siri costs, you know, they're not going to like send me Siri. It's funny that you mentioned this because I actually did my senior project for uh, my undergrad was not too dissimilar from this in some ways. I mean, what I was doing there was I was doing a neural network. Uh, what I, basically what I was doing was like trying to do a very crude model for universal grammar, which as a quick, quick aside is like Noam Chomsky's. No, no, go with this because it, it segues into the other thing I want us to talk about. Okay, I, I've got like... Hope you don't need to go to work today because I've got like nine branches that we do need to like nine things that we do need uh, to just, uh, tie off. It's going to work fairly soon, but keep going. Okay, but um, anyway, for the quick version is before Noam Chomsky was like a political guy. Um, you know, he was a linguist, and uh, you know the theory is basically that like everyone to some extent, like all human languages share share certain characteristics, right? Like we all have nouns and verbs and certain types of sentence structures, and of course the details vary quite a bit, but that there may be some underlying deep representation that is universal to all languages. And then we sort of translate that um, into, you know, whatever actual words the language you're using. Is that a good explanation? Yeah, like, that's, you know, yes. Right. So, you know, if you want to say, you know, like the dog chased the cat, like, you know, there's some deep representation of the concepts of dogs chasing and cats, but it's not like you could come up with another way to represent that information that didn't, like, in other words, some languages might say chase dog cat, some languages might say cat chase dog and put the object before the subject, but all languages have those three words, and they don't have some other way of expressing, like, any of those three concepts, right? The, I guess there's one more thing you should add there, that there's sort of a, a smorgasbord of, of how you can say this. So if you're going to put, like, the subject before the object, then that sort of entails a bunch of other stuff for your language that I can't think of at the moment yeah right there are certain right certain linguistic rules tend to entail other linguistic rules like certain patterns of how a language is structured 
do correlate with others. Uh, but anyway, you know, so th this was a, a, a comp computational model. And what I was doing was basically I was trying to use a genetic algorithm uh, with, uh, along with neural networks to basically try to train networks to do word segmentation of text. Um, and because text is funny, I think what I did, if I remember right, I could be wrong, but I think what I did is I took the text of like Moby Dick in English, and then I took the text of the same book in Spanish and the same book in like Dutch. I think I did those three languages. And I believe I ran each of them through something that is supposed to turn written, um, written language into, uh, you know, like a phonemic language, a, a list of codes for sounds that thing people make. Yeah. So I, I have that. There, Carnegie Mellon has a, they're called pronouncing dictionaries. Carnegie Mellon has one for right. English, but I couldn't find one for French. I mean, you know, back in 2003, when I wrote this, I think I managed to find a tool that did this, but, um, you know, that was some time ago, but, um, anyway, I think these, yeah, I think you can get it. I just don't remember how I did it. Um, I mean, I could look back I, if I could find my hard disk archive from 2003, I might be able to, to find what I did, but anyway, I mean, I don't really need to go over the point of that, but the point was basically like, could you, like, if you trained a neural network from just random, uh, you know, that had no characteristics at, at start other than like random values in all of its settings, you know, you could train it over a number of generations to be very good at segmenting English words or very good at segmenting Dutch words or very good at segmenting Spanish words. But the question is, could you, could you evolve a type of neural network that was faster to learn any of the three languages than a naive network on average? Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Uh, like one that, that was preset to learn all three languages quicker than, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, no, I think I'm certain someone must have tried this, but I, uh, yeah, I'm sure it was not that novel of an idea. Anyway, that's what it did. And they, of course the answer is you can, because you can pretty much evolve in a neural network to do anything. So there is some underlying structure to those three languages, the way I did it, at least that, you know, made it easier to, like, you could put something in a proto state that made it learn any of those three things better. It's not like you needed so specific skills to segment English, Spanish, or Dutch that, you know, you, there was no like sort of underlying set of rules. But of course, the problem with neural networks is you have no idea what those rules are. So you don't know what's universal about them, really. Uh, you just know that something can do this. But yeah, it never stopped anyone um, from about 1980 to 1990. Well, yeah. Or now we're back to deep learning again. It's cool again. Yeah. Soon we'll have bell bottoms and then... Bell bottoms already came and went, dude. No, no, I know. We're doing it again. Okay. It's the time warp again, Mr. Curry. Oh, yes, I am a sweet transvestite. Okay. That's going to be great with no context. Have we tied up all the threads that you currently can maintain in your memory? Well, I have many more digressions about universal grammar. Sure, but anything that's directly entailed by what we were talking about? Well, the whole uh, Saper-Whorf Sapir Wharf thing. Should we talk about that or should we save it for next time? I vaguely remember, but I, I, I know why we'll... Oh, okay. So, so this, is, uh, this is maybe germane to whatever you're going to say next. So uh, it's these two guys who never actually published oh, right. together and never actually called this a hypothesis, yet it is named after both of them and called a hypothesis. Yeah. And the idea is basically that language may sort of structure how you think. So that's the strong version that, you know, if your language sort of has uh, an easy way to express something then you're more likely yeah. to think it or to talk about it. Yeah. And uh, 
So this is sort of hotly debated, right? Because if it's true, it's a right. little bit weird. And if it's not true, it's also sort of surprising. Right. Um, and this is his, sort of by way of coincidence. Uh, Worf is responsible for the stupid meme that Eskimos have like 100 words for snow. Oh, yeah, that guy. Which, Which it, you can easily disprove by saying, look how many words we have for snow in English. Snow, snowball, snow cone, igloo. Right. Uh, right. Sleet. Freezing rain. So he got misled because in uh, – first of all, there's no Eskimo language, which is a – you would think of right. a flaw with this claim. But the language that, that some of the Eskimo uh, and Inuit people speak uh, basically makes yeah. new words. It's like German. So instead of you know, making right. like it's a, a – What is the word for that? Uh, a, it's a, a something old language. Agglomerative. Agglutinative? Yeah, yeah. Agglom – not agglutinative because that's, that's, that's the stuff in bread. No, uh, I think, it, I think, I think it, is right. agglutinative is also – Oh, maybe it is agglutinative. Agglutinative. Hold on, I'm looking up what Athabascan is. Language. Do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is, okay, I was totally wrong. It is an agglutinative, I mean, I was wrong about mocking agglutinative. It is an agglutinative language where you just join a bunch of prefixes and uh, suffixes onto a root word to make a, like a whole sentence. Yeah, yeah, I think that's why gluten is called gluten because it joins things together. Because, yeah, well, it glues things together, yeah. But glue, oh! <laughs> I don't know if it comes. I don't know if it comes from the same word as glue, but it does mean like yeah. I, it probably does in some deep old English sense come from the same word as glue. <laughs> gluten from the Latin gluten or glue. Oh, never mind that. All right. Okay, so uh... right, so 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 the Eskimo language is made from wheat. So uh, pussy, <laughs> which does not grow there. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Yeah. So so that claim is is sheer idiocy. But there there's. Right. Right, so this sort of directly contradicts universal grammar thing. So, you know, if, if you have this sort of universal representation that you morph into whatever your language says, then you can sort of think about whatever you want. All right. But isn't it, sorry, uh, maybe this is obvious in what you're already saying, but like, obviously some words are much more common in some languages than others because the concept is more, you know, oh, right. like if you're a caveman, like, okay, so perfect example. I took a couple semesters of Old Norse in college, right? And, you know, if you knew the words for spear, fire, horse, wife, and ship, you could pretty much read any piece of uh, Old Norse literature pretty effectively, right? Because everything was about, you know, throwing the spear at the animal of some sort or, you know, the enemy and getting on your ship and, you know, someone taking your wife and you getting on your horse to get back your wife. So, you know, obviously, we don't talk that much about spears and fires and horses these days. So... Right, well, that's the other thing with the es the Eskimo claim, right? I mean, skiers right. have, like, lots more ways of describing snow than, like, I don't know, right. someone from North Carolina who's like, oh, my God, the rain's turned white. Or if you do some sort of priming task, I mean, some a skier is going to be much more likely to, is going to probably just be able to read the word snow faster, even in a non-snowy context, than a non-skier, right? Just because that concept has been primed for them so often. Right, and they have needs to. They need to sort of distinguish between like powder, which is fun to ski on, and you know, right. like sleet, which is just miserable. So I guess the qu I mean, but anyway, the question is, I guess, like, well, how could you ever prove that this has anything to do with the language itself, and not just you know the frequency of certain concepts in a culture? Exactly. So, so it's it's hard to test, right? Because the culture is sort of tied right. up with the the language is sort of tied up with the culture, and the culture is sort of tied up with whatever you've got yeah. going on in your life. Yeah. Um, so someone had this cool idea that you could use colors to do it, right? So everybody wants to look oh, at things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where the – and there is sort of this original study 
uh, where they found differences in how uh, Hopi or Hopi, 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 Hopi. I think, I think it's, it's Hopi. Actually, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, speakers and English speakers sorted colors. Right. And so everybody should have. Yeah, there's a lot of I, I've now I, now I'm remembering this. So there, there's a lot of studies on this there, and a lot of controversy in this category of studies. Yes, yeah. this is how I rabbit holed myself last night. Uh, right. It, it's crazy. Right. So the basic idea for 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 non people, you just give people a bunch of like colored tiles, basically of all colors of the rainbow, and ask people to sort them, at, you know, and see like if that relates to the kinds of words they have for color in the in the language. Right. Is that the fast way to do it? Yeah. So you either sort so, them or you do like a memory test. Right. So you're like, all right. Right. Here, here's this chip. I'm going to mix it in this pile. You know, how fast can you find the, the sort of matching paint chip? Right. And I guess the, the point would be that like in English, you know, we have color words like vermilion or uh, cornflower blue, but we don't use those very much. Uh, the words that we typically classify colors by are like the eight or so colors that you get in the Crayola box. Right. Like red, green, blue, yellow, orange, brown, black, white, gray, you know, and then and purple and you run out after that. But like I think Russian, I think, has like two different words for blue, one of which is more like sky blue and one of which is more like deep blue. Right. And they're both. Like they would never call something just blue. They'd call it one of those two things. Yep. And sort of the opposite. So uh, Japanese has a blue that sort of spans green. Right. And I believe some languages just basically have like hot colors and cold colors in their sort of most basic classification. So like one that covers blue, green-ish things and one that covers like red, orange, yellow-ish things. Yeah. So, so there's actually a sort of like universal grammar for colors. Which is, right. well, if you believe this. It's kind of a hierarchy, right? Like a universal hierarchy. Yeah, so you start by saying, like, black-white, basically. Or black-dark, dark-light-slash-hot-cool. Right, yeah. And then, uh, hold on. So if you have three, then you get a red. Okay. If you have four, you have either a green or a yellow, but not both. Oh, interesting. And then, uh, you know, five, you add in the missing green or yellow. Right. And then you get blue, blue. brown... That's really interesting, especially considering, the, you know, how the visual system works. Well, so that's, that was actually the weird thing about reading about this, because it's, it's just such a broad range of people sort of, like, banging on this topic. Yeah. So there's, there are, you know, some, some physiologists who are like, look, so we have a, we have a, a red-green and a blue-yellow opponent system, and then we also have this sort of mm-hmm. overall sensitivity to it, the amount of light. And then there's, like, yeah. philosophers of color who are like, well... This, this is like more or less directly from a paper where they're sort of doubting this opponent system because Goethe didn't think uh, – di- it didn't <laughs> occur to him and he was very introspective. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean yeah. my bias is – you that, know that men have more teeth than women. Well, women have true more – True fact. Women have more cones than men. Right? Well, yes. But you're, you're talking about <laughs> truth and I'm talking about Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, yes. Women have more cones than men. Two more. Well, two, two, two plus one. So uh, I guess the cone... Wait, oh, no. Sorry. I was talking about boobs. I, I know. Aren't you always? That's kind of an old-fashioned slang for boobs, though. I don't know if that translates to our modern audience. All right. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So the one of the genes for generating a photosensitive pigment is on the X chromosome. And a, right. as a man, or as men, you and I have both. Well, uh, multiple. Both, all of them are, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Well... I'm sure they depend on stuff on other chromosomes, but yeah. Well, well, right, but I mean, you like you can get red, green, like both both red green color blindness and blue yellow color blindness, uh, 
are more common in men. Right, right? because it's on the so, X chromosome, and so, you, we have but one. And if something goes... Right, so both the blue and either the red or green... Well, actually, yes. All, we know that all three, I think, are carried on the X chromosome, right? Uh, I think so, although we know... Like, I think so. Astonishingly little about color. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, so yes. Yeah, so as a man, we have but one X chromosome each. And so yes. if something goes, goes pear-shaped there, then you are likely to lose your color vision. Right. However, women have two copies, right? So first right. of all, they're less likely to go colorblind if there's like a mutation that just sort of kills the cone pigment. Right. Right, because they'll still have one good copy. But if it just changes it slightly, then they can end up having uh, four cones. Right, yeah. That's, we should talk about that more later, although I think this is one of those things that sounds cooler in the headline than it is in real life. No, that's, that's basically the headline. That's basically the whole thing. I mean, the basic idea is that women can have like a small mutation on one of their color-sensitive pigments in their eyes. And, you know, the headline is, some women see like millions of more colors than men do. But actually what it means is not that like women can all of a sudden see the color flurb, you know, that is not existent to everyone else. But they are slightly better at distinguishing like shades of red than other people. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's not like they're, you know, they're suddenly living in like a My Little Pony, you know, like color explosion world. And we're all living in like the first, you know, 30 minutes of, uh, of Wizard of Oz, you know, it's not that dramatic, but. No. Uh, and that's a good segue for maybe this will be a coming attraction of my favorite animal, the mantis shrimp. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the mantis shrimp. There was that good oatmeal comic about the mantis shrimp, which you probably saw. The mantis shrimp is friggin' awesome. Um, yeah. So we will link you to the oatmeal com- comic, but uh, it is a, a shrimp as you might guess from the name. And so we have, as we just discussed, you know, three or four cones. The mantis shrimp has 15. Yeah. Uh, it has, it can see polarized light, which is sort of how light, uh, I guess, spins. It's sort of difficult to explain. Yeah. We, can we talk about polarization in general at some later point? Because that's one of these things in physics I still don't really get. No, me neither. Okay. But uh, polaris, like if you look in the water with, your, with good sunglasses on, right, you can see deeper in it. And that's because it's yep. filtering out some of the polarization. So the mantis shrimp okay. has the best polarizers that like can be made. What else is awesome about the mantis shrimp? Okay, well, let's table. Can we table the mantis shrimp? We're at two hours of recording right now, and you probably have to go to work. Can we do a lightning round of things that I still have left to talk about and like one or two sentences each and, and wrap up maybe? Oh, can, can I talk about one other Saper Wharf thing? Uh, hey, it's you that has to go to work, not me. Oh, so this is actually another really cool. So this was originally held up as an example of the phenomenon, but it but it's not. Uh, so you know about digit span, right? So if you ask people to remember yep. a string of numbers, it's how many numbers they can remember. Yep. And this was tested, I think, with Americans, and it ended up being seven plus or minus two. So you can, like... Well, yes, in the 50s, and now we know it's really more like, well, okay, go ahead, yes. That's an outdated model of working memory, but we won't get into it right now. Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, the part of the reason we know it's outdated is, so if you go and do it in China, uh, it turns out to be about nine plus or minus two. Right. So make your own joke there. But it turns out that it's related to the length of the word. Right. Right. Because you really can, because when you are given a length of digits to remember, I mean, what it basically comes down to is you can, what you're really doing is you're really repeating them to yourself. You're using your words to talk to yourself inside your head. And what you really have a span of is about two seconds of repeated speech. And that's how many digits you can say in English in two seconds. Whereas you can say more in Chinese in two seconds. Yes. And fewer in Arabic. So it correlates like... I didn't know this. So yeah. It's kind of cool. Um, yeah, I mean, that is a, a cool... We should talk more about that kind of general thing. But Does that mean the Micro Machines man has, like, infinite working memory? Uh, possibly. Um, you, need to, you need to study him. 
Okay, so there are many, many, watch how weirdly we are able to close. Uh, this is going to be like, a, this is going to be like the Ulysses of podcasts because we're going to tie this all together in all of the things that I've accumulated. Um, number one, you ever read the straight dope? Yes. You know, the Cecil okay, Adams, like the Cecil Adams, like I, I guess largely obviated by the internet, but like was in the eighties, especially, I think it is true. He is more or less obsolete. Yeah, I mean, he, he was like the snarky answer man uh, before the internet. Anyway, one of the greatest things I ever read about uh, the whole uh, myth of the Eskimo language and the snow thing was, uh, you know, was that question, and he basically debunked it. But, you know, he went on to talk about how uh, the Inuit language is an agglutinative language. And one of the best things that I'm going to have to bleep this, but one of the, the best things that I still remember from that article is he's like, in my spare time, I've been trying to uh, construct an Eskimo sentence of my own using this agglutinative language. Because the idea is, like, we always make fun of German, right, for, like, just sticking a bunch of words together and calling it a new word, right? And you end up with a word that's, like, 40 characters long. Yeah, there's the Mark Twain um, bit about how the German starts on the one side of the Atlantic with the, uh, the noun in his mouth and emerges on the other side with the verb. Right, yes. Uh, but, I mean, that really is how, my understanding at least, is how, you know, a strongly agglutinative language like uh, the Inuit language works, where... Like, a whole sentence is basically one really long-ass word. Uh, but anyway, he was like, all right, so in my spare time, I've been trying to construct one of these Eskimo sentences. I was trying to say, look at all this f***ing snow, but so far all I've got is, observe the snow, it fornicates. <laughs> Which I just thought was a funny way of saying it. In a similar vein, have you seen there is a rash of bad Chinese translations? No. Basically because you can use uh, the... The word to do as a synonym for to fornicate with, as in I did your mom. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so, like, people that really. Well, it was like are, uh, shrimp with, with garlic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, people that just take a synonym for some sense of a word and just use it. Yeah. That's funny. Okay, so. All right, lightning round. Okay, when you said, this is just a random aside, when you said imagine a mathematician, I thought you were going to say Norbert Wiener, who is. Oh, he's also awesome. Yeah, well, he looks to me, if you Google image search pictures of him, he looks to me like a cross between Teddy Roosevelt and every nerdy fat kid in every, like, you know, 70s movie ever made. I just wanted to observe that. I mean, if you're going to invent a field called cybernetics, you more or less have to look like Teddy Roosevelt slash nerdy. That's true. Oh, God, the one of him smoking with his, like, weird vehicle. Oh, yeah, with the, the weird kind of steampunky looking thing with all the wheels. I like the one, uh, where is it? Uh, it's... It's on findagrave.com. It just sort of perfectly, it doesn't look like that special. It's just a portrait, but it kind of perfectly embodies that dual, like, badass, but also kind of a dweeby little kid look that he had. There's one where it looks like he's DJing, too. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's a Tumblr just waiting to happen. DJ Wiener. <laughs> Moving on. Um, next item of business. Oh, so what I was going to say, back when we went into this whole, like, linguistic cons conservation theory, what's weird to me, though, is that Malay seemingly is not complex in any of these senses. So that kind of ruined, it kind of ruined this theory for me because Malay has both a very um, small vocabulary and a very simple grammar. And as far as I can tell, there's nothing else about it that's like complicated. Like it's written in a very straightforward manner. But it's very long, right? It's very verbose. Um, a little bit, but really no worse than a lot. I mean, it is a bit agglutinative itself. There's a lot of prefixes and suffixes. I should cop to the fact that I only know this from sending him rude jokes Google translated into Malay. Yeah. I mean, you do get, like, a good example. You get words like, um, like, kasalamatan, 
which means uh, safety, which is salamat, which is like peace or, or safeness, and ke, like then a ke and an an added to the end. You know, so you get kind of long words, but that's not really longer than like a lot of the words that we have in English. Um, so anyway, that segues though into something I'll have to look up again, which is that, uh, you know, one other possibility is that, you know, the languages that are quote unquote simpler, um, you know, it's made up for by the fact that people speak them faster, right? I mean, because there's the whole thing about how, um, like Spanish is a good example, it's phonetically very simple compared to English. There's a lot fewer sounds per syllable in Spanish on average versus like English or German, right? But people that speak Spanish generally speak Spanish very rapidly, right? True. So it is, it is, there may be, and it is true that people that speak Malay exclusively do tend to speak much more quickly than uh, English speakers do. So maybe that's where it's made up for is that, I, and I think I have seen things that say this is true, but I need to look them up again, that if you look at people's natural speaking patterns, the amount of information conveyed per second in natural speech is roughly equivalent across all languages. Yes, this was a side result of, of one of the things I was okay. looking up for the okay. entropy. And I think that would be a better way of, you know, what I was going to say is that would be kind of a better way of doing this whole idea of the entropy of a language is, you know, looking at how much information you actually get out when you're trying to generate it in speech. Yep. But, okay. Yeah, I was going to do that. I just didn't. You mean going to talk about it? No, no, I actually crunched the numbers. Hey, we could get a paper oh, okay. out of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think somebody's already looked at it, but I can't remember the details. But no, I will smite them. The other thing I was, the other study I've always wanted to run is um, I, I have to like think about more, but I think there is also some general relationship to cognitive capacity in the sense that um, I think people also talk slower. Uh, well, I mean, it is true that people talk slower when their attention is occupied, right? Yeah. He says guiltily. <laughs> uh, now I have to get back into this. I had some, I had some cool hypothesis about... Uh, now I have to remember how... We, we're doing this in the... Talking about this in the context of like distracted driving. I'll have to take this out of the podcast because now that I think about it more, the memory is not well-formed enough to actually... Are you going to Tadine effect? Are you, were you going to go to the Tadine effect or should we say that for next time? What is that effect? The surround suppression. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that effect. So you let's put talk it in the thing. The IQ and ignoring the distractors? Oh, the... Uh, what did you call it? Everyone in my lab calls it the Sedin effect. I don't, oh, is that the name of the person? I don't know. I always just call it surround suppression because, you know, that's a thing. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, let's talk about that next time. Um, but uh, anyway, there's some study I want to do on distracted driving with the idea of using... Uh, <laughs> Would you like to come to Montreal? We have a lot well, of that. Yeah, no, no, trust me. <laughs> we have more of it here. Um, but uh, it, it was basically using like... Um, oh, I think it was just looking at like if you had people engaged in natural speech, like if you had them doing a driving task while simultaneously doing a structured interview with the um, experimenter, if you could use uh, verbal speed as an index of attentional load and use that to predict like when people are going to make errors, right? Like, like if they did have a high attentional load on screen in theory, like with the number of objects they had to track, if they were speaking faster, that would indicate that they're you know, attentional load was more inwardly focused and that they should be more likely to make errors when they're speaking faster. That's kind of cool. We should do that. I, I keep trying to think whether it's cool or if it's too obvious, but I think I had some kind of coolish way of investigating it that now, now I forget. The thing is, don't put this in the podcast, but I sort of hate everyone who does the distracted driving angle. It's, it's just so hacky. I mean, I think there's cool things in it because, again, oh, 
I think we can leave that in because, I mean, that's sort of, again, this is sort of how I relate my research to people sometimes as I say, well, you know, you know when you're driving, you're distracted if you're looking away from the road, but you're all dis also distracted if you're thinking about things that aren't driving, even though your vision is completely unobstructed. And clearly that suggests that attention in some sense is a shared resource between the external and internal worlds, right? Um, and what we study is internally driven attention or internally directed attention, um, even though most people who have previously studied attention have studied it with regard to vision or other senses, right? Yeah, no, that's 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 fair. That's kind of cool. I mean, and I wouldn't. I'm actually doing a driving study this summer, but it's not a distracted driving study. Well, it could be. Just you know. Well, yeah. I mean, but it actually is, I'm getting more into like things about like capacity limits. So it's interesting. I mean, this really is all coming full circle because uh, we're doing a bunch of studies on uh, how much stuff you can hold in memory at one time. And I mean, there's obviously a lot of research on this, but we're doing some, some variants on this and trying to relate it to driving ability, which as far as we can tell has not been done, even though you'd think it would be. Anyway, there's more to talk about there, but... Uh, we'll come back to that when you're done with it. Yeah. But anywho, okay. So uh, lightning round continues. Um, so we were talking about cicadas. I don't have anything much more to say about them except uh, you lived through them in like the 90s, right? They did get up to Connecticut when you were a kid in the 90s because the last time was 17 years ago. No, it, it actually wasn't. There was 2004. There's like different... Uh... Well, there's different broods, right? Yeah. But the one, I think it's the same one in North Carolina and, and in uh, Connecticut where we each were as teenagers. I don't remember. I, don't, I mean, I'm sure it happened. Maybe it's a different group. I don't group. remember it. All right. I, I, I do vaguely remember. I remember there were cicada shells like everywhere for, uh, you know, several months. Yeah. The 2004 brood, I moved to Baltimore right after it started and it was gross. Yeah. I think that was all. I, I just wanted, I put it in our show notes to, to see if we wanted to talk about cicada science. Um, it is really cool. We'll talk about it next time. It's just kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mainly also just wanted to make a joke about, you know, going underground for 17 years to have sex once and die. Uh, Insert your own joke there. All right, moving on. Uh, we did popular explanation versus real science. I think we kind of covered that sufficiently. Maybe I'll post that uh, article. Last thing, which relates to all this, um, which I think is maybe what started a lot of this. When I said Google image search, a color wheel, right? Yes. Okay, so you know the standard color wheel, not the one that's like cut up into pie wedges, but like a continuous color wheel um, like you get in Photoshop or something when you open up the color picker, um, where it's, you know, you can see uh, there's one on webdesign.org, for example, if you Google image search color wheel. Um, but any of the continuous color wheels work where it's, you know, full, if you're using the hue, saturation, and brightness or value color model, it's full brightness, full saturation, and then like in a circle, you see all the different hues that a computer can represent, right? Mm -hmm. You're out with me so far? Okay. I think we talked about this already when we were looking at the game. Um, There's a game on my iPad called uh, Pocket Frogs. And there was a frog that like changed color. And I was talking about how it looked like, even though he, what was actually happening was the frog was sweeping smoothly, like rotating around that color wheel, it looked like he paused on certain colors longer than others. And you can see that in the color wheel too, right? So if you, you're looking at one of these color wheels right now. It uh, could be. Okay, so pull one up. And at least to me, what it looks like is, even though I know that on the computer, it is a continuous ring of color where, in theory, every hue step is the same distance apart. What it looks like to me with my eyes is that there's a big swath of green that's all about the same color green. Then it kind of merges into yellow, but there's kind of a sharp band of yellow. 
And there's kind of a, a little bit of a transition to red, but kind of a big swath of red. And then kind of a sharp band of magenta. And then kind of a big blue hunk. Um, and a pretty sharp cyan hunk. Yeah. But it, it definitely does not look like all the color transitions are equally smooth, is I guess what I'm saying. It looks like, it definitely looks like there's three very bright transitions at yellow, magenta, and cyan. And three very wide chunks of red, green, and blue. It could be. Although calibrating your monitor to do color like in a sort of accurate way is a huge pain in the butt. Right. Is that is that because... So this is what I wanted to ask you, Mr. Visual System guy, a real American hero. Canadian now. Oh, right. A real Canadian hero. Eh? <laughs> Mr. Always says I'm sorry. 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 <laughs> sorry. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Always Buys the Donuts. That's probably too old a reference. I'm going to take that out. Nobody remembers Mr. Real American Hero. Yes, they do. Those were fantastic sure. commercials. Okay. It's like the one good thing Bud Light has done. Other than, well, they make beer still, so that's not very good. <laughs> other than intoxicating well, us. Well, it's Bud Light, though. That's not even that much of a win. <laughs> well, that's true. Zing! Anyway, so my question is, is that phenomenon due to the fact that a red, you know, we think that a, a, you know, you and I don't think this, but I think most people see a computer monitor and think this can generate all the colors there are. But obviously it can't, right? I mean, because it has to create everything with a combination of one wavelength, one red wavelength, one green wavelength, and one blue wavelength, which does not actually generate all of the color that we are capable of seeing with our eyes, right? Oh, yeah, not at all. Right, not at all. And it's also, it's, in other words, you would get a much different sensation if you were to, and this gets into too much detail, right? But like that's 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 producing different color sensations with a combination of three discrete wavelengths of light. But how to how to say this quickly? In other words, there is a wavelength of light that looks orange, right? Yes, a, a single wavelength of light that is orange. But you can also produce the exact same sensation as that by mixing red and. Uh, well, red, green, and blue wavelength light in the right proportions, right? Well, yeah. yeah. So, so the the orange light, right, excites your your short, medium, and long, which is what we inexplicably call the uh, red, green, and blue cones. Right. But yeah, I did this backwards. But anyway, blue, green, and red cones. Yeah, but, but I mean, it's that's not like a weird mixing thing. It's just the red hits it just so, or the orange right. hits hits each of those just so that you could reproduce it by. With, right, with, with like, okay, here, here's, let's say, let's say orange is, what, how many nanometers would that be? Like 600 nanometers or something like that? Uh, yeah, maybe a little less. Okay, some, uh, let's just say, because I have no idea. Let's say red, red is like 500, so yeah, somewhere around there. Okay, but red's a bad example, because red, we have something that's perfectly tuned for red. No, but it must be below about 550, then. Uh, hold on, let's just look up visible light spectrum. Because <laughs> why not get it exactly right? Wait, I want to guess. I'm going to say 525. Oh, who is awesome. Oh, I totally got it. What? Oh, I went for yellow, orange sorry. Is, orange is like I've got 650? Orange is 597 to 620. Yeah. I rule. All right. So anyway, let's say, let's say, I mean, let's put it on the low end of that to make it easy to round. Let's say orange is 600 nanometers, right? So in other words, you could shoot a single photon or you could shoot two photons of light at 600 nanometers, and those would look orange to you because they are orange in some sense. Yep. But you could also take one photon that's 550 nanometers and one photon that's 650 nanometers, 
and that would pretty much also appear orange to you, right? Um, now, not exactly. No, no, you'd, ha- you'd have to you'd have to mess with the weights, right? You, you'd do like. Well, you'd, yeah, you'd have to weight them differently. I guess it wouldn't work exactly to put them exactly on either side. You know what I mean? Like it wouldn't it wouldn't actually excite things the same as having. Well, would it? No, no, you, you're you're overthinking this. It's just a basis. The, the tuning curves are asymmetric. Yeah, and it's just a basis set. So you you might say like. Right. I, I have I don't have the spectral sensitivities for cones in front of me. Actually, I do. But anyway. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So like 10, 10 reds and like, you know, eight yellows or something will get you... Uh, would produce the exact same uh, mental sensation of viewing as a pure wavelength of orange, right? Well, not even mental. It's, 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 you know, similar even in your eye. Oh, physiological, yeah. Right. I mean, yes. It, whether, whether think... In other words, whether you're... you're I guess put it this way. Like... Your red cone is is activated the most by red light, but it is also activated, well, let's say actually, because it's a little more obvious, your green cone, if you're looking at the spectrum, is activated most by green light, but it's also activated to a lesser degree by cyan light and um, yellow light, right? Yep. So your green cone doesn't really care whether it's actually getting 10 photons of green light or 20 photons of blue and yellow light, it's, it produces the same physical response in that green cone, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And so it's a combinational, combinatorial problem, rather, of how much your red, green, and blue cones are excited by whatever wavelengths of light are hitting it, that it can, your visual system can figure out what the probable wavelength you're actually seeing is, right? But anyway, the RGB monitor takes advantage of this, right, by essentially tricking you into thinking you're viewing a single wavelength with the right combinations of red, green, and blue color, right? Yep. Or red, blue, yeah, yeah. green, and blue light. Okay. So all of that is to say, is that effect I perceive on this color wheel an artifact of the fact that we're using a red, green, blue monitor? Or if you were to show me, because obviously you, you can't in any easy way, I guess other than me going out and getting a prism and, and doing this, and now I guess I just have to go find a prism somewhere, if you were to do the same thing with pure wavelengths of light, would that same, does that, I, that's what I can't remember, is last time I saw a prism, does that kind of banding appear, or does the rainbow that comes from our prism look 100% continuous? And this is an artifact of RGB monitors in this color wheel. It's funny you ask that, because one of the items on my to-do list for today is to color calibrate a monitor. Oh, really? So assuming I can find a photometer today, I will get back to you with that. So you can color color that color calibrate it so that you can say produce me a chunk of light that is exactly equivalent to say 608 nanometers or something like that. Well, it's more that so you have equal amounts of red, blue, and green pixels. Uh, right. Or actually, I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, well, yes, because each pixel on the computer is a three pixel like it's three little bars. No, I think I think they're actually smarter than that now. Oh, the ones I the, when you see the blow of like an iPhone screen, it's still yeah. It's it's fifty green, twenty five blue, twenty five red, usually. Oh, really? Uh, for like a Bayer filter and a camera, yeah, it's it's mostly green. Okay, maybe one's a little thicker, but I as, I seem to remember they look like little flags, right, with three like vertical stripes for every pixel that make a square. Yeah, on at least most of the cameras, I don't know if this is true for monitors too. Uh, so there's an alternating row of uh, like blue green, blue green, blue green. And then the next row alternates uh, red, green, red, green, red, green, because you're just so much more sensitive to green. 
Okay, see, I, uh, if, you, if you Google, like... All right, you're so much more sensitive to red, rather. But uh... if you Google, like, um, well, if you Google, like, LCD screen magnified or something like that, or LCD I'm screen... I'm actually trying to take a picture of my monitor with my camera, which happened to be on the table. Because um, all the images I've ever seen of LCD screens blown up... Well, that's actually not true. Some of them do have weird little shapes to the pixels, but they all have the red, green, and blue in equal proportions. Hmm. Maybe that's only for sensors, then. Maybe it's only for sensors. Uh, I mean, because it... No, you're right. All the ones on YouTube... Well, it's pretty easy to build a filter, I would imagine. You know, because your LCD screen is really just a backlight with a bunch of little filters that switch on and off, right? That, like, either let red light through, green light through, or blue light through. But it's pretty easy to build those of any wavelength to mix them right. But I imagine it would be... Well, I think so, at least. But it, it would be harder to build a sensor that senses all of those wavelengths equally, right? Yeah, I guess so. Oh, LCD screen magnify. All right, we have a lot of things to link to in the show notes. Yeah, right, so it looks like that, that you just sent me, which seems pretty equal, but... Yeah, that does anyway. seem equal. The camera, though, is different. It's called the Bayer filter. Oh, I see what you say. Yes, it's the green is like the, the one color of the checkerboard, and then the other color of the checkerboard is split between blue and red, yeah. Okay, well, anyway... I'm not sure if the color calibration of the monitor would really answer that question, though. Would well, it? so part of the reason I think there might be an artifact is on CRTs, like, the, the guns are a very different strength. Yeah. Like, I, I can't remember off the top of my head which way it goes, but uh, I think there's, like, four times less red than green, which gives you some weird artifacts. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we'll find out. Well, yeah. We just really need to get our hands on a prism or wait for a rainbow to show up. Because I just can't remember. I mean, certainly... Again, this I guess this ties back to the whole language thing, right? Uh, this is a very kind of turn-in-on-itself podcast. Um, when you see a rainbow, what you don't say is, look at that continuous stream of color, right? You say, Roy G. Biv, we do have this sensation that there are stripes in the rainbow, even though the rainbow effect is actually, you know, in theory, a perfect prism effect, right? So it should be equal distributions of wavelengths. Um, in the color bands, rather than or rather than color bands, right? It should be just be like a blob of color that goes in a gradient. So, anyway, I didn't know if you knew anything about whether that sort of banding, that banding of like certain colors, you know, certain frequencies of pure light, if they really um, group, you know, like you, you know, the green greenish frequencies sort of all look more similar than like you know the yellowish frequencies, right? Yeah. Well, it's there's also, this is sort of the opposite of everything we've said so far, there's a ridiculous difference in color perception across, or color cone ratio, like across people. Oh, yeah. So th this actually came up with the worst interview I've ever been on. There was that, there was that, art that article where they first uh, imaged the cones, and they're like, holy crap, everyone has really different ratios of these three different cone types in their, in their retinas. Yeah, so it, it goes from, so classically you think that there's about one long cone, that, that's red, for every medium cone. And this is what the interviewer at the world's most terrible interview uh, wanted me to say. But it turns out that that's not actually true at all. It varies a ton from person to person. Yeah. Um, I, there's a really good figure from that that I teach in a class, actually, so I can link to that, that original. There was a science article from, like, 1998 or 99 that, that they first imaged that. And it's pretty dramatic. It's sort of weird it took that long for people to, uh, people to discover. To, like, directly image the, rod, or the cones in the retina, yeah. Was it, you sure it wasn't nature? Did I say science? Yeah. It might have been nature. I'll, I'll look it up offline. And like to it. Okay. So that's all. I, I think I finally closed all the loops. Uh, I, I killed my old self and closed it all up. Um, oh, no, I didn't quite. 
All right, one last thing. All of this, well, the thing, the first thing I wanted to talk about, maybe we can just tease this for next time. Coming soon. Yes. Well, our discussion of the movie Easy A, which I wanted to have more with you, partly because we were talking about this movie, and I watched it again to, to hash out with you. <laughs> Your commitment to research is just overwhelming me. Right. You sat through an hour and a half of Emma Stone for me. Yes. Uh, I'm touched. I, you know, as I, I tried my hardest. My very hardest. Um, but um, I don't think you can see me face palming, I guess, but I am. Yes. <laughs> uh, face palming. joke in there, but I'll... Yes. <laughs> there you go. Um, maybe we'll... So what I was going to say is what I... You liked it. I liked it all right, but what I didn't like about it was the sort of like too aware of its own cleverness thing. It did have the Juno, Juno disease. Yeah. So maybe we can like sort of pick up on that next time. As a segue into, because, uh, so anyway, that sort of goes back to the whole, like, your science uh, explanation is, or your science title is a little too cute of, of your poster or your paper or whatever. Um, there's, like, sort of an appropriate level of of cuteness, you know, uh, that I felt like easy across that line. We'll be putting photos of ourselves on the website so you can see the appropriate level of cuteness. Not that kind of cuteness. Well, maybe that kind of. I was an adorable baby. You don't, you don't want a My Little Pony, like, holding a baby piglet, because that's just... You know what I mean? That's gilding the lily, but... Uh, That's going to be my faculty picture. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we, I was figuring we could use that to segue into a discussion of that dude with his screenplay algorithm. Oh, please. Which we already kind of discussed over email, but, you know, I think that would be kind of interesting to talk about on the podcast. Excellent. Yes, brace yourselves for a fantastic rant. But maybe... Which actually means that we had notes on, like, 10 stories to do on this podcast, and we got through... Uh, we got through the intro, sort of. Well, let's see. Miss, miss, hit, miss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's just me ranting, so that's, I don't know how we count that. Miss, miss, We got miss, through the chiclet. Miss, miss. And, yeah. Hit. And, oh, well, we did, we got through, like, four out of, like, 12 or something like that. And to be fair, you know, people have spent their entire lives studying one of these things, so. Yeah. Right. Oh, but we should give out the website address because that would be right. embarrassing to screw that up. That would be another item on our, our show notes to actually hit. So, so take it away. So if you would like to contact us, uh, first of all, in the iTunes description or whatever the feed is that you're using to access this, uh, our email address is listed. But our email address is supersciencehappyhour, all run together, at gmail.com, supersciencehappyhour at gmail.com. The website is sshmm.wordpress.com. Again, sshmm for Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. Anything else we need to plug? You can subscribe on iTunes. There's a link to the raw XML feed or the raw like RSS feed on the website if you want to use some other pod reader. Uh, I guess let us know if you have feedback. So, so several Android people uh, have asked me, how else they can get it. And I said, well, you can also just stream it directly off the website if that's your thing, um, like from your browser. I'm so disappointed that the android people you're talking about are smartphones and not, you know, yeah, androids. Not, not actual Cylons. Come on, Lamar, Bur- Lamar Burton. Uh, <laughs> not Lamar Burton. No, uh, no, no. Um, Brent Spinner. Guy. Yeah, yeah. He, well, it does not compute why, why we would have this podcast for him. But um, yeah, so there's a link to the raw feed. And um, if anyone knows things about how, how other pod readers work, and how we could link it up. Uh, so far, I think we're not going to worry about anything we have to pay for to syndicate. That'll maybe come in phase two after everyone sends us, you know, big fat wads of cash. Is that before or after I buy my island game preserve? 
I think it goes hand um, hand. number one, number one microphones, number two island human game reserve, and number three you know podcast syndication outside iTunes. Oh, I was gonna work my way up. You I, know, two's got some sub phases. First, you hunt the pandas, then like. Mm. Okay, so maybe we you know we first get enough to buy decent microphones, then we take like a like a mildly exotic lizard hunting break. Mm. I'm going to need some mustache wax for that too, I think. <laughs> yes. I'm a Dapper Dan man myself. I'll prepare an Amazon wish list for this. <laughs> yes. Um, but we actually, I mean, seriously, I don't think anyone's listening right now except for um, our old college roommates and uh, grad school buddies. But, uh, but if you are rich. You know, <laughs> yeah, if you are some kind of eccentric billionaire. We will not hunt you. We please promise. Please let us know. We we will even invite you to our uh, exotic hunting facility um, and let you talk into our microphones. And if you're, you know, a potential student, you should join the Johnson Lab. He won't hunt you. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yes. But anyway, go to the website, email us, send us feedback, let us know what you want. Oh, uh, rate us on iTunes, preferably well. That would help. And uh, I think that's about it, right? Feedback is welcome. Hopefully we'll have some guest stars on. Yes. Uh, in future episodes, once we kind of hit our stride with the with the two man operation. Cool. All right. So we should sign off because I have to go calibrate a monitor. All right. Have fun with that. Uh, I have to go sleep and get ready for my nine more hours of meetings tomorrow. Woo-hoo. All yeah. right. All right. Uh, goodbye, science lovers. So long. I don't know. I mean, have you, has anyone talked to you about the name so far? No. Uh, it is awesome, though, in that it's, you know, a bunch of doubled pairs. I, I like it. Uh, yes, it's seconds, hours, minutes, which doesn't... Uh, I never even noticed that. Yeah. Which I like. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, obviously that's not the format that you usually write time in, but that's one way to think of it. Because, um, you know, you often see HH colon MM colon SS. Um, and we do have a bounty of hours, minutes, and seconds. Uh, hey uh, <laughs> HMS bounty, yeah. Um, that was way too high concept for Yes, it morning. was. <laughs> uh, that's, going, uh, that's going in the outtake reel. Which, by, by the way, also, at least one person that talked to me did not realize that what was going on is we had, like, an outtake reel after the outro music. So, um, so maybe we'll make that clearer somehow. But... Um, there was a good moment, uh, so I just got done with, you know, one full day of annoyingly or, you know, miserable meetings and such, and I have to go back for another tomorrow, but there was a, a good moment where um, we all had to do updates, uh, updates on our lectures or something like that, and we were referring to some class, and they're like, somebody was asking, like, if people were still complaining about my uh, parts that I teach, because I teach some of the more difficult stuff, like, you know, neural yeah. stuff, retina, you know, like levels of the retina and so forth that's like pretty difficult for undergrad psych anyway they're like is it still long and hard i was like oh it's longer and harder than ever (laughs) (laughs) and uh, a couple people weren't quite getting it so i had to repeat it two or three times until they they got the innuendo i sort of imagine that there's a small child like an indiana jones who goes around and translates your innuendo for (laughs) well fortunately you know uh penis jokes are the universal language so uh finally finally Somebody in the room was just like, he's talking about his penis, guys, just in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> really? Yes. Uh, so th- that happened in my departmental meeting today. <laughs> they know you well, apparently. Uh, well, he does, apparently. Yeah.
Um, oh, so anyway, before we go much further, um, what I was saying is let's make sure you've got your gain now turned down to the point where like laughs or something like that are usually the things that peg out the easiest. So okay. if everything's too laugh. quiet, that's not a big deal. We can just amplify, right? But you don't want to like... Um, yeah, once it's clipped, it's gone. Once, right, exactly. So ha ha ha. Ha ha. Okay, that's a little clippy. Clipping. Somewhere. Clipping. Your mom. Mama, mama. Clipping. Ha 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 ha. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's do the time warp. Yes. 